Hi, and welcome to the second edition of the Lesson Org podcast. In my quest to unravel the secrets of creative minds around me, I decided to invite my dear friend Neil Hoare. Neil is an Irish visual artist trained as a filmmaker in Winnipeg who decided to onboard the Berlin creative experience around the same time as I did. Following his call to collect valuable life experiences, he has developed a very human approach to visual arts that tends to reveal the world through the lens of poetry. After wandering around for some time in Neukölln, telling the silent stories of random people in the streets, he decided to focus on relating the tale of Irish people in Berlin. This attracted the attention of the Irish embassy, who decided to work with him for an interesting project. Listening again to this podcast, as I edit a few burps, farts, and water-drinking noises, I must say I am loving every second of it. Neil's story is human, personal, kind-hearted, passionate, crowned with the ornaments of simplicity, and I really hope it will inspire you to pursue your creative quests. And without waiting any further, please let me introduce my great friend, Neil Hoare. Hey Neil, how's it going? Pretty good, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. I'm great. Summer is coming over, so yeah, I'm starting to feel. I'm starting to feel great. I actually love winter, but I also love like a bit, a bit of warmth in the apartment. Summer is something I'm pretty much looking forward. To. That seems to be a typical Berlin experience. Uh, the the lack of heating in the winter. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna heat up with exercise and a couple of blankets. Very nice. I, yeah, I believe I've seen a video of you do a hundred push-ups one time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was so, a. Uh, that was a challenge I had uh, with actually with an with another Irish friend that you may not know. Um, so yeah, he was like uh, that was during pandemic, and he was trying to motivate some of his friends to exercise again. Um, I mean, I never needed motivation to exercise since about ten fifteen years, but uh, he was like, yeah, maybe you can be part of the challenge. And he said 50, yeah. 50 burpees a day, which was quite a challenge for me because my cardio was shit, like absolute shit. So I struggled, and then I was like, okay. It's just make it a hundred, maybe, <laughs> and I started doing a hundred. Now I'm down to I'm down to fifty. That's a um, hundred a day for like forever is just completely insane and quite useless. Yeah, yeah, it sounds pretty insane. I don't think I do a hundred of anything every day. A <laughs> hundred steps, maybe. <laughs> yeah, a hundred steps, just about maybe. Say, <laughs> say fuck a hundred times. Yeah, and I've never been never been a sporty one myself. But I think last time we had a conversation, you were educating me on um, on uh, um, like different gradings of of exercise. So like the the work I would get behind working in a bar is second level. I think you were telling me. Was that you telling me? Maybe that's. Maybe I was talking. I was talking about the the zones. The zones. I, yeah, that was it. Yeah. So I, I'm basically. I'm. I'm just about. I'm skipping around the edge of one of those zones that keeps me slightly alive. Uh, but uh, yeah, definitely not a hundred burpees. No way. It's it's insane. Um, to be honest, you have to have. Um, it's not something that everyone should do. Um, because especially now I bought um, I bought a, a heart rate monitor. Um, because I really want to basically work more with um I, I, I can't say i became obsessed with heart rate but uh i've realized the importance of heart rate in everything else that i do like how i feel tired sometimes and how i'm like not so endurance and um, for example when i go to when i go to a club and i see that at 5 a.m i'm already like oh i need to go to bed and um, that's yeah. a bit that's a bit like that's a shame because most of the greatest music happens like whenever uh, in in the morning mostly, so I don't want to feel tired whenever everyone else is all fired up. 
Well, that's dedication. Yeah, so I've started to uh, study all, all this shit and um, yeah, burpees, whenever you see how what your heart does, it basically goes from um, a normal heart rate of let's say 55, 56, 60, um, up to 150, 160 beats per minute, yeah. like in one go. So I'm not sure that this is clearly appropriate for everyone, um, but whenever Whoa. like... Um, Whenever you want to, whenever you want to train, it's a, and, and you actually have a little bit of experience. It's actually a very good way to train your entire body. But you might feel like you're dying on the way. <laughs> <laughs> I heard, I heard the comedian Jimmy Carr uh, say the other day. I don't know if he was talking shit, but he said that um, he listens to 92 BPM music before the show, and um, to give him the, the sense of rhythm for how he delivers. Uh, his his comic delivery and he says he, he reckons that 92 beats per minute is the 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 timing of comedy that that could make sense um because yeah. i would say somebody who's so somebody who exercises their um normal heart rate at rest like at complete rest let's say um whenever you are checking something and just waking up and having your coffee it's going to be um for someone that exercises it it could go down to like um 45 50 and someone like who doesn't exercise it's going to be 60 something 70 something if it's higher than that then uh, there's probably a couple of problems um yeah. but for normal activity it would be between let's say 80 to 80 to 100 so 92 sounds like um the perfect balance between excitement and chill <laughs> so you're like chill enough to receive and be open and laugh but you're also kind of slightly fired up because you don't want to yeah. fall asleep on the on the chair so yeah that makes sense yeah yeah that makes all sense so where um where exactly are you from in ireland uh, I'm from a town called Swords, which is famous for very little. It's twinned with the French town of Ozoir La Ferrière. I don't know where that is. Um, and it's near to Dublin Airport. That was kind of the most interesting thing about it was that we anyone who was flying out of Dublin or flying into Dublin, they would always stay a night in our house or um, the night before or the night after, you know, or they would park their car there instead of paying for the parking at the airport while they went on summer holidays. Um, so Swords was a town of maybe 50,000 people when I was born. And it would have at some point in the 90s become the fastest growing town in Europe, they called it. And I think now it would be at like 80,000 maybe. Uh, and it's made up of, uh, there's a big castle in the middle, a proper castle. And then maybe two, three, four, I think maybe four, what you'd call high schools, secondary schools, we call them in Ireland. And so everyone in the town went to those schools. So you kind of know, you know everyone anyway. Then you know everyone that you went to school with. And you still know them to this day when I'm, I'm now 37 years of age. Um, I would have a, a huge group of people. It's like living on an island. That's what swords would look like. Uh, wow. You were far enough. You were far enough from Dublin City that, like, you wouldn't go there every day, or maybe you'd go once a week when you got old enough to drink, or for the all ages gigs in your teenage years. But it was like an hour long journey to Dublin City. So you you essentially did a lot of all of your friends were from Swords, and everything you did was in Swords. So school, all of that sort of stuff. It wouldn't have been until I got older that maybe fourteen or fifteen we we started going to all ages gigs in Dublin City which would have been like rock 
rock music orientated sort of stuff. Nice. But uh, yeah, yeah, Swords was interesting. Swords is it's, it's a nice town. It's it's the kind of place now where people who can't afford to live in Dublin, they move out from the city a little bit. They live in Swords, or they even move further out now. Um, and it's kind of I'm trying to think if some people have come from there. Um, the I'm trying to think of the cool people that have come from there. Um, I'm sure everyone Roland, is cool there. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a few cool guys. But we've had a few bands emerge out of there, friends of ours or lads that we went to school with who have all done kind of well. I believe um, one of the guys from Girl Talk is from Swords. Uh, crazy, crazy band. And uh, the band Coda Line, um, Cast of Cheers, All Twins. These are all kind of bands that were formed out of the schools we went to. Um, and yeah, some of them, like, there, there was a good scene. There was a good kind of garage, guys playing in bands and garages um, my whole my whole youth, you know. Nice. So it, I yeah. guess people are kind of pushed to uh, make music or to play an instrument when they're when they're in the school years. And is it like like um, like in the States, for example? No, no, absolutely not. In the States, I believe like everyone has a go at a marching band or, you know, playing the snare or the tuba or something. Whereas or the in triangle. School, yeah, like in, in primary school, like when we were younger, the closest that we ever came to that was a children's choir, um, a national children's choir where, you know, it was like a strangling cats, we probably sounded like. <laughs> um, I had a teacher I had a teacher who taught us the, the tin whistle, uh, Miss I Go, or Miss I Go, You Go, We All Go. And uh, <laughs> she taught us the tin whistle. Which is a traditional Irish instrument for sure, um, and but we learned. I think the first song we learned was the Grand Old Duke of York, uh, which obviously is not so Irish. I'm not actually sure what that song is about, but uh, she taught us the tin whistle, and I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I as I would now. I bought one again a few years ago to relearn. Um, I always wanted to play the Lord of the Rings soundtrack on a tin whistle. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that was primary school. In secondary school, there was uh, there was one class of music, and I think between first and third year you didn't have access to that it was only after your third year for your fourth and fifth that you could actually do a music class and have a music teacher and it never even occurred to me to join uh, the music class um, some of my friends would have but they all seem to have more of a natural talent or they came from musical families um, but again most most people were just playing guitar there was nothing beyond that. There was no cellos or, or uh, classical instruments. It was very much, um, yeah, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, learn how to play Green Day or something like that. Uh, so for me, music didn't really come from school. Um, you know, it was like even art. I, I think I did art up until I was 14 and we do a mid-school exams at that point. It was the only subject I got an A in. Um, and I didn't continue to do that till I was 17, 18, finishing high school, because actually nobody was encouraging you to to take art or music, really, for that matter. Yeah, and the art teacher and the music teachers always taught some other subject as well. That wasn't their only thing. Um, because I think growing up, uh, art was considered um, unemployed, unemployment, that you wouldn't have a job you wouldn't get a career not with something like art sure nobody ever succeeds doing that in ireland you know except for bono 
when when nowadays like um every every big company is o- is only talking about being creative and creativity and <clears throat> how creativity can um help you think out of the box and uh, basically make your company become um like enter the, the the like the top 100 companies in the world just because you're creative um, yeah it's insane our actually our, our city was actually made by creative people because like if there wasn't crea- any creative people berlin would still be like um, just uh, ashes, I would say, if nobody was creative enough to yeah. just take the city whenever it was completely destroyed and make something nice out of it. Yeah. But it's yeah, it's it's funny that in in every country and every um, in every um, let's say educational system, they're always gonna they're always gonna say yeah okay um, you you. you you can have you can have an art class, but uh, you should never do that because this is not a job, and it's not going to bring you money. For sure, it is not a job, but um, I'm pretty sure that if we build a society with um, people that have absolutely no knowledge in music or in arts, well, um, I think we've pretty much tried that in South of France, and look at how it is. <laughs> yeah, right. Just a just a yeah. bunch of people complaining about complaining that it's too sunny or too cold. Like that's 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 what it makes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't know. I, it was you just even calling yourself an artist. Maybe it was just where I was coming from. Maybe it was my parents' upbringing and their background being quite. My mother's family would have been quite poor and working class, so there was no chance anyone was becoming an artist. Um, like I have an aunt who would have worked in the Galway University and she worked as the archivist there and there was something about her growing up she was a bit different to all my other aunts and uncles in that she seemed to have a, like a style or she had an interest in aesthetics and the books in her house and the music and everything seemed oh there's something about this person that I, I probably learned years later was like she was artistic she was arty but she never got as far as to paint a painting or write a song because she was never encouraged to do so the closest she ever got to it was being the archivist in the university and i've kind of felt like that was my experience as well that i've struggled and tried to like you know, shout at times, you know, and say, I think I'm an artist, you know, I think I'm creative. And for never, it's not that people discouraged me, but nobody ever listened. I don't think anyone ever really responded to that call, you know, even though there was plenty of evidence that I was interested in creativity and lots of other kids were, it it was really, it was really something if if you enjoyed doing it, then it probably wasn't going to get you a job. Mm. And so, yeah, for me, school, and I mean, even Swords, the town I grew up in, it just, we, it was clearly divided. There was kids who wore Adidas and Nike and Nike Air Max, and they did certain style on their hair, and they wore caps a certain way, and they had utter contempt for the rest of us who are like, we'd call ourselves rockers, I suppose. They called us hippies. You know, because we wore baggy trousers, skateboarded, and they hated us. And you'd be in town and you'd have things shouted at you, like hippie or this sort of thing. Uh, You know, we usually just ignored it, but sometimes it got you into trouble or got you into fights. And this was kind of what you were going up against was, okay, I really want to be a guitarist or I really want to be a skateboarder or I really want to wear these clothes or dye my hair or do something like that. But you knew that there was half the town of, of kids or teenagers were going to make fun of you for that. 
I've lived exactly gonna, the same thing. They were going to put you down for it, you know. And it, it, yeah, it's so funny, isn't it? You grow up, if you ever get to meet a lot of these people again, and you see them and you realise they they were the ones playing the act. They were the ones wearing the the costume. And now when you see them as older people, you realise, oh, they realised, you know, music is cool, <laughs> you know, art is cool, uh, whatever you want, poetry, taking that stuff kind of more seriously or, or actually um, making it your career or something is, is something worthwhile that, that at the time I was made fun of maybe for, and, and now I think they would envy me for more so. They probably trade their own lives for for that. Um, definitely had the the probably the exact same path, like um, um, skateboarding, being into rock and roll, then being into well, I slightly yeah. shifted into um, hip hop whenever I, whenever I was like in my in the middle of my short skateboarding career, if we can call that a career. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there was there was quite the same, like people wearing Air Max, people like um, being into like the kind of what everyone else liked, um, yeah. running after the, the last trend, the last whatever the fuck it was. And then there were like people, myself, um, walking around with um, a skateboard and my guitar and um, just be, just wanting to um, live life differently. And then when you see these people, um, they're either in like a really um, squared up life, if I could call it like that, and mm. have like families and are like really like I don't know, just really all set. And yeah. many of them go, many of them, I, I met an old an old friend recently that was saying, oh yeah, I recently realized that um, I want to write. So every night when my kids are gone to bed, I'm, I'm writing and they tell you like, yeah, but you were you were always following a creative path whenever we were younger. You, you were never really like um, wanting to do things like like everyone else. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's funny, but uh, I guess, yeah, I join you completely on that, that we, we can't, we can't really fight it. It's just like you're, yeah, you're born I mean, with sensitivity or you're not. You can learn it definitely with the people you're going to be around. But some people just have some sort of uh, sensitivity that is in like born that it, but it's born with you. Like, yeah, I think fundamentally deep down they want to do what you're doing, and they just didn't. They didn't do it, you know. Uh, or they weren't, maybe they were pressured by their friends or their peers or their family that that wasn't the thing to do, you know, to be creative. And I mean, I do envy these people sometimes as well, like when they have a, seem to have a simpler life, they have a steady incomes and things like that. I'm, I've found it quite a struggle over the years even just to call myself a creative or an artist, you know. Um, and yeah, I think you sacrifice a lot of things as well, maybe gone down the creative path that well, I, I don't know you make, you make choices maybe not sacrifices but you make choices that determine the rest of the way your life is going to go and in one case maybe you have a family and a house and in the other you go well hopefully my photographs are my babies you know or totally um i definitely agree with the with the term sacrifice because um yeah it is it is definitely a, a sacrifice you're either you're going to sacrifice um, either like time with your friends, like good fun in a in a bar. Like whenever you're in a bar, it's 3 a.m. You start to think, okay, I could uh, stay here and have fun and like forget about the time and then be hungover on Monday and go to work and everything is going to be okay. Or I could be tomorrow waking up and um, just going to um, exercise at my craft or like uh, finishing yeah. this last track or putting the last 
touch to that picture that I, to those pictures that I shot um, a week ago that I need to finish up. Um, yeah, that's, uh, there's like a sense of sacrifice. Same with the budget. You could um, save money to buy a house and uh, make it a swimming pool in there and then like, uh, yeah, just or buy the buy nicest a, car. You can buy a drone and it flies away. <laughs> exactly. So what, what's so, the story yeah. with, with, with you and drones? There's a story about drones, right? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, today I, I had to track down a drone that I lost uh, yesterday. <laughs> it blew off on me. I lost connection and the battery died midair, I guess. Or it, it went for an emergency landing, but nowhere near where I was. So I had a... The fi- I had its final resting place GPS coordinates, but I couldn't be sure that's where it was. So I enlisted the help of a German friend and we knocked on some doors at a building, I believe it was on the roof of. And we found a guy. He said, yeah, I'll have a look for you. And he came back with the drone. So it, it was actually in perfect condition. And I've had the drone for only one month, I think. So it was a real uh, turn of fortune. I, I, today wasn't a good day until I found the drone. But uh, yeah, um, I've just kind of got into it recently, uh, taking aerial photographs, you know, where you, you take these very much kind of almost satellite images if you fly high enough and you make the the normal streets or buildings or parks of Berlin look kind of uh, elevated, you know, into something something more strange and surreal looking. So that's, where, sure. that's the drone story, yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's that's where I'd go next is after school. In school, we do a final exam. So I would have been 17 finishing high school, secondary school. And I'd say there was maybe a few months before we do the final exams and you really have to choose the courses you want in college. And I think I was going down the science route because, again, I hadn't been encouraged with art. I didn't continue to do art after the age of 15 even though it was my best subject. And I got talking to a friend of mine one day. I said, what are you doing after school? Uh, John White was his name. He said, oh, I'm going to study film. And I kind of laughed. It would have been 2000, 2002. And I laughed. Uh, the idea that you could study film in Ireland or film production in Ireland, I thought was hilarious i didn't think that was possible i thought you had to go to hollywood to study these things or only americans got to study film and so i actually changed what i wanted to do then from science to a film production course um in dublin and that's kind of yeah that's where i started learning how to make movies properly but my interest in films had come like a long time before uh I think I have two older brothers and an older sister, and that's always beneficial when you're the youngest uh, for your music taste, I think, and for your taste in movies. Uh, when all the other kids were listening to Spice Girls, I was like uh, robbing Alanis Morissette and uh, R.E.M. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely guilty for that too. <laughs> yeah, like that was cooler than Spice Girls at the time, trust me. Uh, so... We watched a lot of movies. I remember growing up, my parents would go out every Saturday night for a, their one drink a week. They'd go to the local pub and I was left with my older brothers. And we would watch movies that I probably wasn't meant to be watching, you know, like Robocop and Terminator and <laughs> these sorts of things. But uh, at some point in those years, um, my father came home with, I think, maybe 300 or 400 pirated VHS tapes. And... 
it was in Ireland, you weren't getting all the movies in the cinema and you certainly weren't getting them on video. And if you were, you waited years for them. So out of these pirated VHS tapes, um, they were mostly movies that weren't available in Ireland that other people wouldn't have been able to see. Uh, like stuff like, um, I think the movie Sleepers or uh, Hulk Hogan, Suburban Commando. <laughs> um, there was like some real trash there, but there was some great movies as well. You know, Total Recall and these sorts of things that you, you would hear about, you'd hear people talking about in school, like, oh my God, I watched It you know, like horror movies and things that people were watching. And so I was watching a lot of them at home um, with my brothers. And then when I was back from school early before my brothers, I would be able to put in a videotape and watch them, you know, without my parents realizing I was watching a 15s or an 18s movie or something like that. So I really had like this huge collection of films that other people wouldn't have had at the time. And as soon as I turned... 14 i got a membership for the the local video shop which you had to be 16 for but i sweet talked the the girl behind the counter and so <laughs> then i would just go to the video shop and um everything um and when i was done with all the english all the english language stuff um there was a world cinema section and i you know i thought i was smart enough to read subtitles so i would start renting them uh, until you had watched everything in the video shop you know, this is before streaming, obviously, and all of that. The video store was the most, it was where you hung out on a Friday night, you know, like before you were an adult, like as a group of kids. And then eventually you would go home and I would I would go home with like three movies a night and watch them all, bring them back the next day, get another three. Wow. This kind of continued. So when I heard that I could study film in a college in Dublin, I thought, that's crazy. I have to do that because that was the thing I found most enjoyable in life i suppose was watching movies but when i think back on it now had i continued to do art until i was 17 i probably would have done a fine art course i wouldn't have done film production and um, i think film production was like some kind of halfway point between where i was and uh, being an artist i suppose and yeah i did a, a two-year course uh, it was like a higher national diploma they called it and to do a degree, you would have to move to England and um, conclude a final year in the UK, which is what I ended up doing. And then I did a master's degree in cinema theory back in Dublin. Um, and I think it was those first two years doing the diploma in what they call a vocational college in Dublin. You didn't have to have massive, massively good results on your final exam to get into one of these courses. And what you found was 50% of the class didn't know what they wanted to do with the future. And the other 50% knew exactly they wanted to be filmmakers or they wanted to be uh, media production people. So those first two years in what would be considered kind of a, not really a real college in Dublin, I think I got the best knowledge on, on filmmaking that I ever got. I, I certainly didn't get it in the UK and I definitely didn't get it during my master's degree, uh, which was in a more prestigious college. Um, it was that real practical, hands-on, digital filmmaking. Um, we used cheap cameras. We never actually developed celluloid or anything like that. But we learned the basics of script writing, sound, lighting, um, direction, and, and these sorts of things. And to be honest, most of those bits of advice and most of those tutors that we had, their, their words are, are constantly in my head, ever-present um, with their advice, you know. 
uh, there was just some real solid people there. And I, I think uh, it, it gave me a good grounding. And there's been people from that course previous to me who'd gone on to do things. The director, Damien O'Donnell, he made a movie called East is East, which was quite famous. Um, and there's been other, other, other people since me now that have gone on to do pretty good things as well. I can't think of their names right now, but yeah, it was one of these courses that the little, what would you say? The little, uh, the little, uh, the little dog that could, is that what people say? The little, the little college course that could, you know, it, it was, it's not meant to produce, um, I don't think people expected it to produce much, you know, but actually I think over time I've realized it was one of the best things I ever did. And I know so many people who went to the same college as well and they do really cool stuff now, you know? Um, sorry, I'm waffling on a little bit there, but yeah, that's, that was kind of my college experience. That's amazing, man. Um, we have, we do have also, um, a, 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 um, like a cinema course, in south of france and that's actually where i wanted to um that's where i wanted to go like in the south in the they have like a, a proper um cinema school where you learn how to make movies and you learn everything about images and then they have like the sound school where you learn everything about the sound and of yeah. course i wanted to move um to the to the sound one and then um i remember we went to <laughs> we went to the, the the there was like a kind of a fair where you you see um all the, the future jobs that you can do and all the new all the schools that you can apply for once you get your degree and i saw that like with sound images i was like ooh this is what i want then i went to see the price of the school and i was like maybe i'll do something else <laughs> <laughs> i was like yeah. nah, nah nah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna necessarily impose that to my parents like that is not <laughs> that is exactly. not something i can really i can really do um, yeah I think we're we're probably quite similar in that way as well. I mean, I don't. My parents both worked and had uh, civil servant jobs, working for in government kind of positions, you know. But very much a, a normal kind of working class income, I would imagine. Um, at the time, and I, I, that's what I think. I don't think my parents ever discouraged me. They they certainly told me to go do whatever I want. After three other uh, brothers and a sister, I think they were done telling anyone. How, what they should study or what to do, you know. So, so they didn't discourage me. They, I don't think they necessarily encouraged me. They were probably scared shitless that I would actually um, want to be an artist for real. Uh, so it was always confusing in my head. I never, I never called myself an artist, even when I was in college. I, I went to the art college where my friends went, and we would attend parties and stuff there. And I saw real, what I considered real artists, people who could you know, who do amazing illustration or painting or sculpture. And they were the same age as me, but they just seemed so much more advanced in even in the theory of like what they were do, doing. You know, I think I was very much, I didn't really understand, understand what it is that I wanted to be. And the, these people in the, in the actual art colleges seem to know so easily the, uh, what, what they wanted. So I think I really have I've struggled for years, even then after university, I, I moved uh, to Winnipeg in Canada for a year and I worked in the film group there. And I think maybe that was the first time I really understood like what art and film could be or what art was in the context of film. In Winnipeg, in the province of Manitoba in Canada, they have a filmmaker called Guy Madden. Excuse me. They have a filmmaker called Guy Madden and he's known for these kind of modern day silent movies 
almost like almost like at, at times close close to pinhole camera photography you know that real old um german expressionism kind of stuff you know the cabinet of dr caligari or uh, nosferatu and uh, these kind of movies he, he made movies like that he makes movies like that in the modern day wow and so when I moved there, there was a movie he had made called My Winnipeg, which was his docu-fantasia. And I think I remember it being like number two on the New Yorker's top movies of the year that year. I don't know if many people remember it now. But it was like a docu-fantasia about a fella who falls asleep on a train while he's leaving Winnipeg. And he dreams about his childhood in Winnipeg. And it's kind of a fantasy. But when he wakes up, he's arrived back in Winnipeg. And he can never really escape. He, he always falls asleep on the train leaving and it wakes up, the train has arrived back in Winnipeg. But this guy, this guy Madden fella, the way he made movies, I remember at one time, he, this My Winnipeg was the first thing he'd shot on digital. And he was so dissatisfied with the look, the high resolution of the digital, that he ended up projecting it onto his fridge. This is like a, the Steven Spielberg of Art House in Canada, you know. Well, he, he projected his digital version onto his fridge, his white fridge, and then filmed that onto celluloid. Wow. To try and bring, to try and reachieve this kind of, uh, this film look or this look that he wasn't getting with the very high resolution digital. So this was this one guy, he, he taught in the university in Winnipeg. And so he was quite well known to the film group. And so I... Because of my friend there, I ended up working for the film group and I got to see kind of the students of Guy Madden, which was the other filmmakers in Winnipeg. And they either seemed to go much weirder in his direction, his direction and much weirder, or they went to the more mainstream Hollywood approach to filmmaking. Because in Winnipeg, Winnipeg can double as Chicago, uh, Toronto, New York. Uh, the plains of Kansas and Nebraska. It had all of these elements to it that attracted big movie makers. But then you had these experimental guys like Guy Madden, um, Mike Marinuk, I think is the guy's name, Mike Marinuk. A lot of these filmmakers would have been uh, indigenous as well, uh, indigenous Canadians, First Nations, um, these kind of uh, people. And uh, they were making movies like I had never even thought of before. They were shooting on film, they were like these wild documentaries, but they would maybe sometimes paint onto the film or scratch on the film, like physically touch it to degenerate it or change it, to recycle the images maybe they had already captured it. In some cases, there was guys who only made found footage documentaries. And when I say found footage, I don't mean like the Blair Witch Project or some you know bullshit horror movie. They were literally dumpster diving in the editing bins of the editing rooms in Winnipeg, and they were taking the cutoffs of celluloid that weren't being used. And they would take them, and there was one guy in particular I met. This is how strange some of these people were. The day I met him he, in the film group, he was quite distraught. He was like a middle-aged man, and he looked quite stressed. Oh, hey, how are you? And Neil introduced myself, and he, he immediately talked in, uh, started talking about the fact that he's a hoarder. And he would hoard so much stuff um, that that day the, the city council had finally removed it from his apartment. Eight tons of shit. Wow. And it, they had to remove it because <laughs> the apartment underneath were noticing this, the, the ceiling was buckling above them from the weight of the shit. So this guy, he had 
been making a film for the last five years entirely of road signs. And every frame of the film, which was now at four hours long, I believe, at that time, was a road sign. And the, each frame had been found in a bin. So think about this. He went through the bins only looking for cutoffs that had road signs in them. Wow. This was the, like, this is filmmaking in a different, you don't think of that when you think of filmmaking, right? But this is what they were doing. And it just kind of, I would never do anything as extreme as that, but it gave me a kind of a totally new way of looking at, at how to make a film. And I realized that this is, this is the artistic side of filmmaking as well. This is what they call experimental. And then when you started watching, I would watch Werner Herzog documentaries a lot, Werner Herzog movies and interviews and read his books. And he started talking about the, that there is no original images. There is nothing new. Our job as creators or filmmakers, as artists, is to take what's there, recycle it and put it out into the world with a different meaning. And normally it takes, of, it takes normally about an hour for people to say something that is like literally pinning me to the fucking chair, but you just did in less than 20 minutes. Fucking props for that. <laughs> Cheers, man. Cheers. I, like, that's what I realized was, um, that's what these guys were doing in Winnipeg. They were taking what was known and they were changing its meaning. And I found that really like freeing. It meant I don't have to be, I can't be anyway, but I don't have to be original. It's not about that. It's about putting yourself into something. And it's also what I, what I see in this is um, it's also we we have that we have that a lot in music and um, I've learned from a, a, a teacher like a, from a class I took a, a few years ago like three four years ago and he had kind of the, a, a similar message like he was saying instead of thinking whatever you want to do with a piece like you say you're listening to a record you go like okay I want to do I want to do that kind of music and really love a special kind of specific kind of music okay I want to do that kind of music and you're going to spend hours and hours and hours to sound exactly the same and be the, this exact um, artist he said just um, take what you take what you have and to make make something with what you have get the first like get your recorder out or even your iPhone you record the sound of the streets and then you come home and just chop that up into samples and see if you can make music with that so that yeah. kind of makes me it's kind of close to, to this idea that um that real art is um doing with what you what you what you have around you somehow have a little bit of an idea as you progress in a project same as um this uh person that uh, filmed is from pro projected a film on his own yeah. fridge that if you don't have an idea of what you want you can't do that but yeah. still um you're working with um what you with what you have around you let yourself be inspired by um the elements that you have around instead of like wasting time waiting for the moment you'll have the perfect camera the perfect actor the perfect whatever this or that you make something with what you have this is like insane because it takes us also back to um, I guess to nature, like nature is not saying, okay, I need, okay, wind, um, I need like seeds for uh, fucking apples and peaches, like bring me that, otherwise I'm not going to grow fuck all. Like, just like, okay, wind brings in some seeds and they uh, male, female meet, boom, there's a plant going, on. okay, there you go. <laughs> that's a tree and yeah. that's a cypress. Okay, well, fine, there'll be cypress then. <laughs> so it's that sort of creativity, like you have kind of an idea, but you're also, um, you're in tune with what you have around, like you're not wasting well, how your time. Else, 
how else do these guys do it? Like you look at someone like Steven Soderbergh or Werner Herzog, movie directors, they just are constantly producing new material. And I don't think it's that they have a uh, this like endless well of brilliant ideas. It, they just keep doing. And not every everything they create is brilliant or perfect, but they've already moved on to the next thing. Um, and, and it's it's that thing. It's it's what they bring to the table is what makes it good, right? Or what makes it worthwhile. Like, I, I don't think I figured it out. Like in, in Winnipeg, a few things happened <clears throat> to learn about film. But I, I met a guy as well. This always has really stuck with me forever. I had a couple of jobs. One was working in the film group. Um, I was teaching uh, some uh, kind of film classes to youth who are at risk so at risk youth um of joining gangs oh wow in winnipeg so i would I'd go once or twice a week to their community center and sit there and if they wanted to join in we would teach them how to make movies um another job i had was as a care worker uh where i would uh, accompany a, a guy to work um five days a week and to the his lunch and, and stuff like that. And I was basically his voice. He was non-verbal. So I was there to help him just get through the day. He had a couple of jobs uh, that he was quite independent and able to work at, but I would have to fill in the gap, say, at lunchtime when we went to get a burger or um, when people didn't really know how to uh, interact with him. I was there to be his voice. So that led me to another job where on a Friday evening, I would give this guy, Matthew, respite. I would give him a night off. He actually lived with two fellas uh, all year round. It was his job. And he looked after them. They would have been two guys in their 20s, but with developmental disabilities. So they were like adolescents. And um, they were like teenage boys, you know. But uh, Matthew was like their older brother who uh, just made sure they got dinner, got their medication, and they were home at night in time. So on a Friday... Uh, he just needed someone to come and give him a night off. So someone asked me because of the other work I was doing and I would go to his place on a Friday night. And I think the first night I went, he, he, he did go out and he had dinner with a friend and he came back and we probably had an hour long conversation before I went home. Now the next week and the following weeks, I think for the next six months, he never actually went out. He stayed and we would, I'm getting paid, you know, but he, he got to chill out. I would heat up you know, the dinner and that sort of thing. And then he would tell me about, uh, well, first of all, he'd show me anime, which I just still uh, never really was able to get into. But the other thing that he did was he explained to me that he had uh, fictional worlds like J.R.R. Tolkien or George R.R. R. Martin, like Westeros or Middle Earth or something like this. He had these worlds and he could show me a map that he had drawn. He says, that's all I have written down is the map. I start with the map. Uh, but I don't have any of the rest of it written down, but I could explain to you 10,000 years of this world's history. Wow. Just ask any question, any time. I'll give you the, I'll give you the uh, origin story. So like the origin story would be these great God, mythical kind of story, origin stories where like the tie of the great goddess, something uh, was cut open and bled and the blood turned into the rivers of the earth and so on and so forth. And he, there were these amazing fantasy worlds. And I just thought, I had read Lord of the Rings, you know, I had read these books when I was younger and I just never thought that a normal person could do that stuff. And this guy gave me the ability to imagine 
that anything's really part you can create worlds you know and and you can live in them you know and and you can have alternate histories nothing like our own world and that you can actually be inspired by them and that never left me uh this idea of creating your own your own world now i think it was many years before i really started to realize that it was me was the most important thing about my creativity you know it was whatever i brought to it but it was people like matthew and guy madden and the 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 crazy hoarder um that kind of uh they they showed me what was possible in in winnipeg yeah. like myself uh, in winnipeg yeah creativity i would no no offense like everywhere everywhere in the world i'm from like a little I'm from a place where people think it's like one of the most beautiful places in the world and I actually find that it's the most fucking boring out of <laughs> fucking hell place in the world. I would never wish anyone to live there in my entire life. Yeah. Thank fuck well, my, most of my family fucking moved out of there now. <laughs> But uh, I, I, I would, you'd say like, okay, I'm going to learn something about creativity. You would say, I don't know, maybe New York, Berlin, um, <clears throat> like yeah, uh, Paris, <laughs> London, Dublin. I'd be like, okay, all right. Or even like, I don't know, maybe Mumbai or like places, yeah, I don't know, yeah. maybe somewhere in Thailand or somewhere in Japan or um, I'd well, be okay, Win right. Win Winnipeg isn't the one that you think of. Winnipeg. <laughs> like, okay. Well, so, I, mean, like, I mean, anywhere in Canada would be like, okay, yeah. that's not well, necessarily a place. I'll tell you why. Because in the winter, it goes from summer to winter in like two weeks. There's fuck all autumn or fall, as they call it. And... Uh, it just goes to minus 25 degrees Celsius. And that's a normal day in the winter for six months. Some days go to minus 50. That's Celsius, not including wind chill factor, which can bring the temperature to a minus 100 degrees Celsius, at which point nobody can leave their house. Nobody can go outside. They all have, they all have the kellers or the cellars or the basements. And when I got there, it was summertime, but it very quickly changed to winter. I was only meant to stay a week and I ended up staying a year, but I, I experienced the winter there. And, and I, within a few weeks of the winter starting, I was already in two different bands and I couldn't really play. <laughs> I couldn't play with other people, but I was in two bands because in Winnipeg in the winter, if you're not playing music, if you're not painting a picture, writing your novel, then you're taking drugs, drinking booze or doing all of the above because you have to find some way to pass the time when you're living on the fucking moon. You know, because you can't go outdoors. Yeah, you could walk around in minus 25 when it's it's dry and there's no wind. That's okay. You can do that for a couple of hours if you're dressed up. But there's some temperatures like minus 50 that you're dead. And it doesn't matter what you're wearing. You, you can't go outside for more than five minutes. So you're you're living on the, the apartment buildings, heating, uh, you know, modern technology. Humans weren't really meant to live in these places. Now, <laughs> so so what you have is everyone's super creative. Right Now, here's the other thing. I, I read Neil Young's autobiography when I was on my way to Winnipeg, and I get to the point where I find out Neil Young actually lived in Winnipeg. Oh, wow. Neil Young lived in Winnipeg between the ages of 11 and 17 and formed his first bands there. And he says in his autobiography, by whoever the other guy is, uh, he says, uh, the biography, it's called Shaky. He spent 10 years writing it. He said, in Winnipeg, the really unique thing about Winnipeg was it's flat. The Red River runs through Manitoba, through Winnipeg, all the way to Texas. And 10,000, 20,000 years ago, it flattened the land. It was much wider than it is now. So the whole land was flat. 
And in Winnipeg, because of that flatness all the way to Texas, there was no natural barriers to the radio waves. So you could pick up pretty much any radio station in North America in the small city of Winnipeg. And that meant, and even if you went there today, I haven't been there in a few years, obviously, but uh, when I was there, there was like a really strong community of every every genre of music you could think of, you know, or, uh, you know, there was a hardcore blues uh, group, there was hardcore punks, there was like hardcore folk musicians. They really had this eclectic uh, influence. So I think between the weather, the landscape, and you have to see Winnipeg in the winter when it's snow on the ground, the sky reflects the snow, the sky is white, the ground is white. You can't tell where one ends and the other begins. And the sun sets, the sun looks like an enormous fucking ball of fire not so far away from us. And then at night, you can see the northern lights as well. So like the landscape, the temperature has created a, a, like a, a city of people who are really fucking interesting. And they're very nice people too. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. that's just... Um... It reminds me a lot of when I was living in, in Montreal, even though Montreal is a little bit more um, gentle, I would say, on the, the, the weather. But uh, I did have the winter that I spent there. I did get minus, I did get to minus 40. And yeah. uh, funny enough, like we had minus 40 a couple of times. And the one one of the times we had minus 40 was a time I was like, okay, I need to find a job. So I did the, I did an Anthony, which is what I always do whenever I need a job. I just print like a hundred CVs and um, I just go and walk, like literally walk and place a CV every single place that I feel like it could be um, a, like a, a potential a place where I could work. And I did that yeah. my, by minus 40. And instead of having my eight hour shift, like I normally do with those things, I say I did a four hour shift and then realized that, okay, as long as I walk, I'm okay. But when I stop yeah. walking, I'm literally feeling like I'm going to freeze to death on the fucking side yeah. of the road. Oh yeah. It's insane, oh, yeah. man. It's insane. Yeah. I, I uh, my bus didn't arrive one day um, after my job was finished. And uh, it took another 20 minutes. So I stood in the bush shelter. The wind is blowing. It's definitely minus 20. But the wind chill factor is what you forget about. I think I had a cigarette. Eventually, another bus turned up. I got on that bus. And when the heating in the bus uh, hit me, all of a sudden, I realized I couldn't feel the fingers of the hand I was smoking the cigarette on. Wow. The fingers that had been exposed, I couldn't feel them. And then after about an hour, it started to feel like as if someone had taken a hammer to them. But I, I was already, like, my boss had called me. He says, hey, you haven't called me. Are you not home yet? But nah, the bus was delayed. He goes, Dude, were you stuck out in that cold? I was like, yeah, a little bit, but I think I'm okay. He goes, get off at the next stop. I'm picking you up. And he, he, he drove and picked me up at the very next bus stop. And as soon as I got in the car, he goes, take off your shoes, take off your socks, take off all your clothes. No, <laughs> he just said, take off your shoes and socks and your gloves. And he just blasted the heat. And he's like, dude, I can see your fingers. You're so close to frostbite. It's not even funny. And uh, it's funny then when you looked around Winnipeg and you saw people over the age of 60, everyone had a scar on the tip of their nose or on the tips of their ears from frostbite at some point in their life. Wow. Yeah, so really unforgiving, unforgiving landscape. But yeah, that was, uh, Canada was amazing. I came back from Canada, Winnipeg. So I actually left Winnipeg and I, I was meant to see more of, of Canada. I was never meant to stay in Winnipeg. So I decided to take a month grabbed a Greyhound bus ticket and went to uh, Vancouver and then Vancouver to San Francisco 
um, where I was kicked off a bus in Northern California, uh, but eventually made it to San Francisco. Was taken on a tour by this uh, lovely couple um, all around the this movie locations and that sort of stuff. I had a really good time. And then I took a three-day bus journey from San Francisco to Boston. So three days and one hour. And in a Greyhound. The only, on a Greyhound. Wow. I swear to God, I swear to God, 30 minutes into it. Man, you must have had like 20, 20 movie scripts like by just, just talking to people on the Greyhound. Oh my God. Like I, I, sat, I sat next to, I sat directly next to about five ex-cons. So one of them, one of them had literally just walked out of the prison. I had no idea. I woke up. It was late night, Lovelock, Nevada. And this guy sat down, uh, came on the bus. Nobody would give him a seat next to them. It was like no room at the inn. And, uh, but I didn't give a fuck. I had no one to talk to. So I cleared the seat beside me. I told him to sit down. He had a plastic bag with, with some stuff and looked like a roadie from Metallica. And I said, Hey man, you're pretty excited. He goes, I'm Steve. Uh, I've been down for two and a half. I'm going to go see my girl. <laughs> I was like, two and a half? Wow. Yeah, assault and burglary. <laughs> wow. He turned out to be a very nice guy. He gave me like a midnight tour of the desert. He was able to point out the gold mines and the silver mines. But yeah, after three days and one hour, I ended up in Boston. Spent a little time with some family there and came back to Ireland in 2009. And then that was a double dip recession in Ireland at the time. We had had the serious financial collapse, the housing crisis. I went back with all these great ideas from Canada to almost start a co-op with a lot of my friends and to really to make something. And when I came back, it was a real slap of reality in the face. There was 14% unemployment. There was no work. Um, everybody was in debt because of the, they had spent too much on their houses. Very miserable time to be in Ireland. And... I actually stayed there for another, I guess, 2009. Yeah, I, I didn't come to Berlin till eight years later, 2017. Um, and in that time, I, I really battled. I lost any kind of hope of ever being a filmmaker or anything like that, um, or even being creative. I worked in jobs that were nowhere related to any of it. I've done so many different fucking jobs, you know, and... I, I started really giving up on the idea. I don't think I even had a camera now at this stage. and um, Things were just fairly miserable. And I guess it took probably until 20, 2015, maybe. And there seemed to be some work there. And I had a bit more experience under my belt. And some friends, we started a video production company. And then I realized after about two years of that, that no, it just wasn't working in Ireland. There was nothing happening. It wasn't, I wasn't satisfied. And I certainly wasn't doing anything artistic. We were doing video work, but it was all very commercial and unrewarding. Um, and I had been to Berlin a few times. Um, and I kind of thought I liked the look of the place, you know. And so I came over here and I spent the first year photographing food, which was sounds fucking great. Uh, except it's all sprayed. You spray the food with oil and all sorts of things to make it look shiny and yeah. to style it for the image. <laughs> so it's all mostly inedible. Uh, but I spent like nearly a year just like pressing a button on my, not even on the camera, on my laptop, you know, just to take the pictures. I would set up the camera. Guy stylist comes in, makes the food. And it was well paid and all, but like it was, it was pretty mind numbing. And uh, 
someone offered me a job in a bar and I'd never worked in a bar and I thought, this is great experience. I think since I came back from Canada, I had been always saying, I'm going to write a movie. I'm going to make a movie. I'm going to do something big with all of this life experience, but maybe I just need a little bit more life experience. And I kept telling myself that. So I thought a job in a bar in Berlin, it was a great idea. The first few months were great. I think by year two, um, it had, it had, uh, it had gone sour and that was Christmas 2019. I finished working in that bar and I went home for Christmas and to Ireland. And when I came back in January, it was pissing rain and gray. And I looked and I had this camera, which I hadn't used since the food photography. And I thought to myself, that's the price of a small car. You don't have a driver's license. So you better use that camera or lose it. And I took the camera out and I went up to Tempelhofer Fells, the airfield here in Berlin, the, the now People's Park. And it was raining and there was no one there. And I just started taking pictures of weird things around the garden areas of Tempelhofer. And from there, um, I guess by February, March, then there was a lockdown kicked in for COVID. March, probably. Because, yeah, yeah I, I took off from Berlin in March. Um, yeah, yeah, and that was the and that and that was when the pandemic started. Literally, we were in Berlin, like thinking, like, oh, people are wearing masks. Ha 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 ha! It'll never <laughs> get. It'll never get here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were we were sitting in a bar, I think, on March 18th, the day after St. Patrick's Day, and the police came in at ten thirty and said, "We we got to close." It's bizarre, but I just kept going anyway. So with all that time now, I, I had so much more time now. No job, just a camera, lockdown. And I just started going up to Templehof every day, taking these pictures um, of things. And I started Instagram. I started using Instagram for the first time and posting pictures. And then sometime around June, uh, uh, there was a, a kind of a, a huge day of picnicking, uh, you know, socially distanced picnicking in, in another park, Volkspark Hassenheide, had turned into a huge event pretty much unorganized it had obviously happened somewhat organically but there was thousands of people there and they were playing music out of bluetooth amplifiers and there was laser lights there was projection shows on bed sheets hanging off trees it was mental and i just happened to be walking through with my camera which is a, a lug of a thing my camera's a canon 5d mark 4 and it's huge and with the lens it's about two kilos if not two and a half so it's a heavy thing and it's not something you'd be carrying everywhere, but I had it with me that day because I was carrying it with me everywhere since January. And I noticed it was now 2.30 in the morning. People were having a great time, thousands of them though. And I could see surrounding the entire park were police vehicles. And they all had their lights turned off. And my watch said 2.25 a.m. And I thought, I think these guys are going to turn their lights on at 2.30. So I took the camera out and sure enough, on the dot of 2.30 a.m. in the morning, they all turned on their lights like it was a big fucking game. <laughs> right? Now, they hadn't kicked everyone out before that. This was the kind of like, okay, now you all have to go. Now it's out of control. But they all turned on their lights at the same time and I just, I fucking knew it was coming and I just snap, 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 snap. And the next day, the next day I put some of those pictures on Instagram and for the first time ever, I was like, I'll try one of these hashtags. I don't know what a hashtag is really or how it works, but 
this was the time this was at the time and i hashtagged it something like journalism berlin second wave illegal rave you know for a little bit of spice and the next day i had two messages one from der bild this shady reporter from der bild newspaper and then this really lovely one from a beautiful person at der spiegel which I had heard of, my mother has heard of, I think a lot of people know what Der Spiegel is. It's actually the biggest print publication in Europe left. And uh, they asked, would I be interested in sharing some more of the photographs from the previous night? And maybe they could use them in a story. And by August, I had been informed that I would be have my picture published in Der Spiegel. I didn't know where, because it's all very, it goes to the last minute to the presses. And I went down to the Spati at 6.30 a.m., the first one I could see open. I said, do you have Der Spiegel? They hadn't taken it out of the wrapper yet. And they took it out, and on the front cover was my photograph. Wow. Yeah, on the front cover was my photograph, and I thought, holy shit. That must feel insane. When I really, and it, because it was so obvious to me what had happened, in January I had committed to taking pictures just for pleasure just for fun, just for myself. Thing, pictures that I wanted to take, not imitations, not copycat, not fakes of something that could be better. It was pictures framed the way I wanted to frame them, shot the way I wanted, with the colors I wanted. And I do a lot of post-processing and stuff. And they, Der Spiegel had accepted me, accepted my images as they were. They didn't ask for them to be more realistic or more this or more that for them they were happy with, with the way i had shot it and i just thought to myself well now i know what to do so it was it stopped being about video and filmmaking and started being about images and photographs and still images i had done lots of still photography before in my life but never never like this i had taken a hundred thousand shit photographs before i took this one you know there was a lot of a lot of shit uh, before I took that Der Spiegel photograph. But what the Der Spiegel photograph told me was, keep going, trust yourself, do what you do. Don't try and do what anybody else does because they're not you. And only you can do you as good. Uh, you you do the best by yourself, you know. Um, and that's kind of where it's been since then. That's probably why we're talking now is because something switched in my brain a, a confidence was found or um maybe a, a, the the negative thoughts a lot of the negative thoughts or self-criticism kind of evaporated a little bit when i realized i'm good enough for this i'm good enough for the front cover of the spiegel so i mustn't be that bad there might be something to this this camera stuff you know but wow. it took me it took me fucking well i was 30 34 when that happened, 35. So it really was up to that point. I um, I don't think I would, if someone asked me what I did, I would say I worked at a bar or uh, sometimes I um, do video work, you know, but I, I was terrified to ever call myself a photographer or an artist. I felt like I'd be found out. Whereas this was kind of like um, an affirmation of that, you know? Um, and it's probably the most important thing that's happened to my creativity in my whole life was was Der Spiegel accepting me for that front cover. So when I when I met you when he did the because you did the the photos for somewhere in the distance in 2018 yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. 
So that that moment you were not really like you were just considering like okay I'm just doing that for fun like just just for like a... well the guys would give me a ticket to go to the, the the festival and then I would get out there drink and party and start taking photographs just snap 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 like I said I took a lot of shit photographs before the Der Spiegel one and stuff like somewhere in the distance was again thanks for the opportunity that was always really nice i don't know if you know emmett condon yeah of course yeah, he slept, so he slept emmett, at my place yeah emmett's great so emmett gave me an opportunity back in ireland on a few occasions to photograph the festivals that he does there and the little uh, different sections of festivals so he gave me a few opportunities like that and that put me in the books of neil flynn and those and yourself neil. here in berlin yeah so really i, I what i'd be is like I was always trying to imitate other people's photographs, so that's the only way I can put it. Maybe there's a better way to describe it than imitating, but, you know, when you're at a festival, you're taking photographs, there's only certain kind of photographs you can... I, I, I was very, I don't know, snap-happy. I don't think I was very showing any talent. I wasn't really trying. Um, you were. Um, there's like a there's a there's one that I wanted to use at some point. It's one with bubbles um, that you took, and it's just... Um, yeah. Man, like, they're... they're most of the festival pictures, they're always like fucking boring, and all you're gonna see is like oh boobs and boobs and ass and like big muscles <laughs> and whatever. But then you you see like there's people that take pictures. It's it's the same the same things, uh, namely the same things are in the are are in the shot. Like there's people, there's sky, there's water, music, um, alcohol. But for some people, it feels boring, and some people, it feels like ah, there's. There's like something in that in that picture, and and not necessarily someone that can describe precisely what makes a good picture or what is different here to there. But what I can say is that I tend to vibrate with some things, and I tend to not vibrate with some others. And your pictures uh, from somewhere in the distance, they, 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 I did vibrate. Like I saw them, and I was like, "Whoa, okay, like there's something there." Yeah, I mean, I think now that now that you mention it, there is definitely seeds of something happening there. But I guess maybe what I'm saying at that time, if you had told me, oh, I really like your photographs, I wouldn't have believed you at all. Like, I would think you're just being polite, you're being kind, <laughs> you're being nice. And that was the same. I was always expecting Neil Flynn to kind of go, hey, look, we're actually not going to post any of the photographs, but thanks a million. We might use them somewhere down the line. You know, the same with Emmett. I always expected this worst, like, oh, no, they're going to find out. I have absolutely zero talent here, you know. So the, just real confidence issues, which I think go all the way back to school and, and growing up where I grew up, you know, and just this, there was a bit of that Irish mentality stuff, you know, and and I've just started. Berlin allowed me to to shed a lot of that that fear to to open up, maybe. Yeah, yeah, you know, and there's definitely something special about Berlin because when I got here, I felt people wanted to work with you. People would genuinely ask you, "Oh, you know, could you do this job?" and I'm thinking, why are they asking me? You know, why? Maybe, just maybe they think my stuff is good, you know. You know, I would be very much that kind of thinker. So Berlin showed me that, like, actually, I do have something to offer. I do have experience. I do have a perspective. Um, and there's there's loads of people that, that can get on board with it and appreciate it and, and show me a lot of love for it as well, you know, which which helps. Berlin is a, is a place... Compared to other places in the world where you have to be like an absolutely um, exceptional to be able to maybe have a spot here or there, I'm thinking New York, 
Um, <clears throat> I shared the life of someone that lived in, that lived in uh, um, in New York and was like uh, like embedded in this. Uh, lifestyle and in this highest level of competition that there is there. Um, and I do believe it can be good. It can be good to have that kind of spirit. But in Berlin, what you see more is like, okay, um, it's more, it's more uh, depending on the human factor. Like um, um, they're always going to give the chance to someone. They kind of feel like, oh, this person is cool. I'd like to give them a chance. And maybe it just opens up the door for... Um, other forms of art, like it did for music, um, it's not for nothing that Berlin was one of the temples of techno whenever it's, whenever it yeah. started. It's because like people were just like, oh, that's cool. Like music with like electronic machines, like bring it over, like no problem. Yeah. We're just gonna dance out in the streets. Like oh shit, we're taking down the wall actually, so we can dance longer yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, it's so so you find you find all these people that will give you that will give you a chance, and for for ta for talented people like you that don't necessarily know about their own talents, that could be maybe the, just a little push they they need. You know, for me as well, I sought out a lot of these people, people like Emmett and, and Neil Flynn, and you know, I knew that these people do something that I I respect, you know, and they're very talented at what they do, and if I could just be in their in their vicinity, you know, maybe there'll be opportunities or inspiration to be had, you know? And I think that's that's been really important too, is, is you know, if you want to, I've learned anyway, especially in the last few months as well, um, if you really, if you want to meet somebody or you want to ask them something, I have a friend who taught me this as well, Keto, he would just like, message Jeff Barrow from Portishead on Twitter, you know, and, and these sorts of things, these sorts of people, and just ask them questions. And I always thought, whoa, that's always, it's, it's out of your reach. It's not possible. Like, you know, for me, that's not possible. But actually it is. You just, just be a good, you know, be yourself and, and approach these people. And the worst thing they can say is no, you know. And I think I've had a lot of, um, yeah, that's been very helpful over the last few years, especially in Berlin, it's just saying, fuck it. I don't, they might be somewhat famous or they might be somewhat successful, but not to be afraid just to ask for some advice or um, if I can take a photograph of you or, um, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm making sense there. <laughs> you you are completely, um, especially for someone like me, who's more like a, an uh, isolated um I'm kind of a hermit, so whatever yeah. I do, I do it. I do it alone, and it's not because I don't like people. Like I love people, even my Irish friends that I haven't seen for months and months and months. Um, I love everyone, but it's just like, uh, yeah, I'm alone in my in my own world, and it just that's exactly the problem that I have is to ask. Um, yeah. I, I don't I don't ask anyone. I don't ask anyone because. I've been educated, like whatever you can do yourself, do it yourself. And it's not necessarily the, the, the way to go. We're here to, to share a human experience. And it's actually why I, one of the reasons why I started this podcast is because um, I feel like talking with people like you, people like um, I've also had Matt and Mark Tibido, um, two brothers that make uh, top techno music. They're like heavily passioned for uh, with their their hardware synths, it's just like these guys. They're some of the best people I've met from last year. Insane people, and like my, let's say my ice. I want to fight my isolation with with this thing and make human contact and share with share with people um, stories of creatives around 
so that so that it could help, so that it could inspire, so that it could um, like create help people create something or help people um, get out of their bad habits or fears, um, maybe by just doing so myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's exactly that's one one of the reasons why I've I've started this podcast just because uh, of not asking anything anyone um always doing things by myself I've decided I needed to engage in something where um I simply cannot I could turn on the recorder and just talk shit for about 2 hours um mm. have a couple <laughs> of drinks in the middle or just to <laughs> just to make it just to just to ease the edge off but uh yeah, it's it's just so much better when you're like um, asking people, talking to people, and trying to discover people, trying to um, even ask famous people, non-famous people. Um, that's that's definitely one thing that makes the art world progress. And we again have the proof with you saying yeah. those things. Yeah, like I always think that it's possible that there, you know, um, there's there's a hundred Einsteins out there we'll never hear about because nobody ever fucking encouraged them to study theoretical physics or mathematics you know that there's everybody is potentially um a creative i think you know and as or has something a story to tell maybe my photographs can be as good that guy with 40 million followers who takes photographs but i only have a thousand followers in berlin especially it, it just feels like you can rise up to the top pretty easily not easily, but pretty fast, pretty fast. If you're doing good work in Dublin, I tried for years to try and do something, but it just wasn't the right environment. I and mean, it's a, a much smaller pool of people. So the competition is more fierce. And it's a and bit it more closed minded. It, maybe it, it is competition. And in Berlin, it's, it's, you know, you could, there's five cities within the city nearly, you know, and each, each one has its own keats and communities and places where you can be the one in that area. You know, I think I've like, I feel like at sometimes I've got a little, um, like Neukölln is my turf. You know, I've taken a lot of these photographs. A lot of my best photographs come from, from the neighborhood I live in, whether it's the, the, um, the guns on New Year's Eve or our burnt out cars uh, on the way home from work. Um, like Neukölln has offered me a canvas as well, you know, and in Neukölln, I think people, uh, you know, I, 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 I can, I can do pretty well in Neukölln, you know, I don't have to do well in all of Berlin, you know, uh, whereas in Ireland, I just would never have had those opportunities. I'm just another fucking guy in, in Ireland, but in, in Berlin, I'm one of few Irish people. And then I'm one of few Irish photographers. So it just gives you like, I don't know, it's given me a, um, it's given me a much better opportunity. But yeah, it's also yeah, because it's more, it's more open. Like people are more open to discover like new things. They're not necessarily stuck on, um, like yeah. some people, you're going to see some people, some, some crowds, which are normally like either, um, Germans, which are not from Berlin, but like Germans that lived that lived around Berlin, but that did not grow grow up inside the city mm. of Berlin, or they're like people that are coming from other more conservative and um, close-minded cities. They're gonna. I'm thinking of like the people that strictly only go to Berghain and or only go to that place. But most of the mm. people, they're like um, like I, I, I like to talk to people randomly sometimes when I'm queuing in 
in clubs and I'm like, oh, how did you, how did you come here? Oh, I don't know. We just like, we felt, we've passed in front. We saw people, we just felt like, okay, never been there. Let's, let's just try it out. And then you find them on the dance floor and they're dancing like crazy and they're staying in there until like eight, nine, 10 in the morning and then going home and you go like, okay, these people have, they had no idea what this club was. They had no idea who was playing. But they're open-minded enough to come and like uh, uh, join the party and have like a good spirit. And mm. next week they'll probably go somewhere else. So they might be like sitting in a bar playing darts. Um, and the week after they might go to um, like a uh, some kind of um, exposition or some kind of hap- art mm. happening. And um, people here, they're they're not like um, okay. We need to we need to go. We we need to do we need to do strictly this. Like if you're making music, if you if I don't see your music on that playlist on Spotify, I'm not gonna listen to it because I only strictly listen to that playlist on Spotify. <laughs> this is how the rest of the world is. You're talking Dublin, but back home yeah. in Nice, it's the same. Like if you're uh, where if you're making music and you're not signed on that label, then you're not making music. If you're um, a dancer and you're not part of this um, yeah. crew, then you're not a dancer. If you're yeah. a filmmaker and you haven't um, like made a film in Hollywood, then you are not a filmmaker. So Berlin is completely like it's going against that. Berlin is like a um, like a, a street kid standing up with the middle finger up and saying like "fuck you," I can do whatever I want. Like my city was destroyed twice <laughs> in fifty years. The fuck you want. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's like 50 years that, the city I mean, was down. At first, you know, I think at first, like, sometimes that can be a bit like, oh, this guy's pretending to be a, a DJ or be a photographer. But, you know, you're totally right. It's like, fuck you, I, I'll be whatever I want to be in this city, you know? Yeah. And I'll do it r- rollerblading in a mankini down the strassa, you know? So <laughs> it, it is great. But yeah, that creative side of things, like, I'm mean, just looking out my window here now and, and just to see, like, a beautifully painted building across the road, absolutely decimated with graffiti and spray paint within two hours, you know, uh, like windows spray painted, everything. And it's great. There's, there's normal businesses going on behind the windows on the walls, but there's this veneer of like art everywhere. Yeah. You, you could look at it as, as gritty urban graffiti or whatever, but it, it's, it's art. Like it's people expressing themselves. It's people everywhere. appropriating the, the streets. Like it's people, um, graffiti is people, the, the people from the streets saying this street is ours. Yeah. That's, uh, that's yeah. why I've always liked even um, graffiti, no, no matter how they are. Like if they're, if they're like really well made, like super, um, I don't know, artistic, precise, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to describe them, but if they're like really sharp or they're like just really shitty and it's just like gangs saying like, okay, this street yeah. is ours and I'm just like opposing my name on the wall to say the street is mine. And um, mm. that's, to me, that's like, um, it's, yeah, it goes, it goes against um, people, it, go, it goes against the status quo, people thinking like, oh, if you don't, like our former French president said, if you don't have a Rolex at your left arm when you're 40, you've failed your fucking life. Like, is people going against that? Is people going Jeez. against the fact saying, like, if you don't have any kids at that age, um, you're yeah. fucked. If you don't have that much money in your bank account, you're fucked. Um, it's mm. people saying, look, um, I am I have nothing. I don't know how I'm going to eat tonight, maybe, or I'm on social welfare. I don't know how long it's going to last, but I'm still here. I'm alive. And as mm. long as I am, I'm going to pose my name on the fucking walls. You can repaint yeah. how many, however many times you want. I will pose my name again. <laughs> So yeah. it's yeah it's uh, I I I kind of like that. Um it's just or maybe it's just me that um 
like in south of France and in Paris, like all these places where streets are like always really clean and like it's just everything is shut down by 10 o'clock. And if you fart on the fourth floor, the neighbor from downstairs is going to say, you're going to need to stop eating beans because you're fucking weighing me up with your farts. And <laughs> I was like, fuck no, like, please, please no. Like, just let the, let the I, life be. Like. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because I like growing up in Ireland and, and hanging out the way we hung out, you know, yeah, there wasn't that much graffiti going on. But the feeling of danger, of physical danger, or mm. of, uh, impending violence was always kind of there, especially when you were a teenager. Yeah. There's going to be some guy around the corner. Whereas here, the place looks as if what your mother warned you about. Oh, don't go into that part of town. It's full of graffiti. <laughs> but it's not the case. It's so safe. There isn't that feeling. Um, I don't feel any of that pressure in Berlin, whether it's... Uh, yeah, you know, like I was explaining earlier on where, where I grew up, that there was rockers and there was scangers, we call them. I think in England, they call them chavs. You know, the, the tracksuit wearing um, brigade, the Nike Air Max. Yeah, you know, it was very much an intimidating atmosphere. The rockers, we weren't the ones starting fights or anything like that, but uh, it, it, there was just this everyday feeling like, you know, if you walk in the wrong part of town, something could happen. <laughs> and I see people coming to Berlin. They're like, "Oh, that place looks dodgy," or "That place looks dodgy." And I don't think I'd go there. Ooh, why would you go there? Like I've met people outside of Berlin ask where I live in in Berlin, and when I say Neukölln, they they're like, oh, "The place they hear about on the news." But the truth is, that's it's it's not it's not dangerous. You know, it's not. It's actually it's alive. You know, and it's it's full of communities of people. Yeah. And you know, it's not a na- it's not a nameless, faceless city it, where I live. It might look like to an outsider just to be people living in apartments and stacked on top of each other. But actually, there's communities of people here, the Turkish population, and I find it extremely safe and very. Um, it's home for me, you know. Um, it's funny because so there's several several things about that. Um, first one is. Um, I found myself in in places where, in many times, in places where I felt like, okay, um, I should not go there. This is actually where I found the most valuable people and um, <clears throat> the like, the, the the friends that I'll keep for the longest in my entire life. But also, like yeah. this this thing in in Berlin, it, it's kind of a, you know, I don't know how you say that in English and French. We say there's always a, there's like a kind of knife that can that is sharp on both edges. Um, yeah, double-edged so, sword. Double-edged sword, exactly. Um, so, on one hand, yeah, it's a lot of communities, and it's a lot of it's uh, it's it looks kind of it looks kind of dangerous, but it isn't. But on the other hand, it is also sometimes it is funky for some and not funky for others. In most cases in Berlin, I'm sure you notice the same. People argue with each other, um, and I've noticed that having worked in a bar and watching some of these arguments, you're like, oh my God, who's going to punch first? And then it just dissolves into a conversation. It never actually gets to fisticuffs or uh, physical violence. It's like, it's all bark and no bite. And it's just something as an Irish person, and I talk to Scottish friends and things like that, and British friends, and they say, you know, back home, that would have turned violent. Yeah. In totally. Berlin, that does that doesn't happen. I'm sure there's lots of different reasons for. I think you can just be sued so quickly and easily is one of them. But um, it, it just that lingering feeling of impending violence isn't here, and that's something I grew up with. But it's, a, it's such a relief. 
it's like a fucking, know... yeah but it's hard to get used to as well you're still quite suspicious and you know uh, watching your back kind of thing you know um that's which a good isn't thing. great you know yeah it can be a good thing but it's it, it can be also close you off to experiences maybe you know i'm still trying to find that balance in berlin you know i think i'm i'm still of a i'm like a generation older than most of the the people here you know most of the expats uh, i feel like i'm a few years older now and uh i have a different view because i did grow up in that kind of environment of like school bullies and and town bullies and that sort of thing that to me like it still kind of exists like my instinct is still sharpened for that sort of stuff of course it's it's like a, it's like when you're when you're when you're in the military for so many years like you have so your 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 fight or flight uh, instinct yeah is all sharp and you're um, you're like trained to um react to a lot of things or when you were like a policeman or a police officer in a like yeah. in a in a in a sensitive area like in just a place where it gets funky really really quickly like you're going to have some things which are um like incorporated in your in your dna like you you have reflexes that are like super fast and you can't you can't help that but i i'd say having like a being used to places where things get funky quite easily and where things can escalate really fast is actually a, a good thing even in in berlin i mean sometimes I, I've I've always found that to be more useful than not useful because like uh, yeah. you always even when you get into an argument with someone you're like okay you're kind of ready you're like okay that that can like that can go like there's like a thought in your head that goes like okay <laughs> that that can go in a second like yeah, but uh, yeah. you always think like you're kind of you're kind of not getting ready but you're on your guards let's say yeah and it just de-escalates as fast as it escalated and then things are okay and you're like, oh, okay, all right. But you're not you're not surprised. That's the most important thing is to not be surprised by it. If you get to the point yeah. where you're surprised by that, then that's where like, you, get in, you get in trouble. If you're not surprised by exactly, it, if you see it coming, yeah. then it's fine. But uh, I'd say, yeah, Berlin is... Um, Berlin, thankfully enough, is um, is a great. It's it's also why I'm, I decided to um, not decided, but how I f why I feel home here, is because you can mm -hmm. you can go out, you can go out with friends, you can do um, a lot of things and not feel like um, you're gonna have a fight at every corner of the street. That's um, yeah, yeah, actually pretty great. Pretty yeah, cool. maybe 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 that's something that's just died out as well. Like you know, that, that's not a, as much of a thing as it used to be. They're all all the kids. The, pre, the next generation have been playing computer games, so they actually don't. <laughs> no, it's actually worse because they play GTA. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so they're just running you over in their car and stuff like that. But it, it's it's a funny because you know my father was a police officer, or in Ireland we called him um, Garda Shiakana. He was a guard for forty years. Uh, he was the longest serving when he retired. Wow. Well, he he was he was known as Mad Mick. Colleagues. He was his name was Michael, but Mad Mick he was known as. Mad Mick. And I didn't really I didn't really learn that until he had passed away, like pretty much at his funeral. Yeah, like there was lads like, oh sure, we used to call him Mad Mick. I was like, why the fuck did you call him that? Well, my dad was a very um adventurous, let's say, detective most of his life. And he he was definitely he'd throw himself right into the middle of something. Well. And I kind of think when you talk about things being in the DNA, I think in a lot of ways 
I was never going to become a police officer. I just couldn't do that initial stage of pulling hippies off the street. You know, it just wouldn't sit well with me. Pulling my own my own mates off the street, you know, for protesting or something. I was never going to get down with that. <laughs> but if you could jump straight to detective, that'd be a great fucking thing. <laughs> um, but I always think that there's there's an element. My sister became a doctor. Um, my other brother became a police officer. And then my other brothers works for like humanitarian NGOs. And there's just something about all three of them and my dad that they do this kind of service work. Their service, they're, they're there to serve other people. And in a way, I, I look for that in my own work. And I think that's where a lot of it comes from is this a sense of justice and fairness from my dad. And this seeking excitement all the time, which is the action of the job, you know, the action of being a police officer. But then the the people work in the portraits that I take, which is the people work of, of any police officer or any paramedic or doctor or anything that they have to talk to different people every day and give them, make them feel okay and comfortable as I do for the photographs that I take. And then the kind of detective work or the thing of throwing yourself into the action as well to get the picture. And I feel like a lot of lot of what I do comes from, like I said, my dad passed away in 2012 and you know, he was a huge figure in my life. And I find huge similarities between his job and what his vocation was, which was to be a detective, and what I do with the camera. And I try to bring those worlds kind of closer together, if that makes sense. It really because fucking does. Because I think that's where my DNA actually is. And I think it's in my family. It's not become a police officer, but it's, it's to provide a voice to those that don't have one. And also investigate, and to, like investigate. To investigate too. and to protect. Yeah. Like, I hope my pictures have a, have a righteousness to them, not a self-righteousness. I don't want it to be too big, but I hope there's a certain kind of there's an element of, of fairness or there's justice or there's some comment on all of that in a lot of my work, you know? Um, and certainly in my portraits of people that there's peop there's real people work that's gone on there. That I'm, I'm talking to the person when I photograph them and I'm, I'm trying to make them relax. I'm trying to, to make them feel so relaxed like they've never felt before so I can get a nice picture of them. You that know? I can confirm at um, at um, Frankie and Yannick's wedding, <laughs> you were, you were always talking <laughs> talking to me when you were taking pictures because I was so I was so I'm always so stressed out when someone is taking pictures. This is why the best you ones know, are the ones that I don't see coming. Yeah, and that that nervous. Um, I, I think I bring a bit of a nervous energy sometimes to things, and I hope that that what I'm doing is really showing you that this guy behind the camera is fucking crazy. That he doesn't give a fuck. He's not embarrassed. There he is lying on the ground, dirtying his clothes, trying to get a nice photograph. <laughs> so the last thing you want to do is feel uncomfortable next to this fucking weirdo. So that's kind of what I'm going for. Nice. Um, did you, um, regarding photography, did you get any um, sort of training about photography specifically or during your film school? Specifically photography, still photography? Absolutely not. And when people ask me my favorite photographer, it's always a tough one because I don't have a, as, as someone known as a photographer, I would be very much into the cinematographers, you know, like Roger Deakins, Conrad Hall, Janusz Kaminski. These are guys I can name, Kubrick himself. They're the photographers I can name and they're cinematographers, but that's where my essence comes from. I don't have the budget to make the sci-fi 
hundred billion dollar sci-fi that I've always wanted to make. You know, it's unlikely that I'll I'll get financing for a feature length movie at any time in the near future. So for me, the still image is is the the scene is the is the cut off piece of celluloid from the bigger film. It's the 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 scene from a movie that doesn't yet exist. You know, that's the way I approach photography is cinematic. I want it to be uh, a, a shot in a movie, you know. So you kind of see like all of your all of your pieces. You see them lining up, and yeah. you you feel like they in your mind they're kind of making a a movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, pretty much. And in a way, the same. I'm trying to take the same photograph. I'm trying to take one kind of photograph, and every photograph is a movement towards that, which you never get there. But the image is there in my head of the perfect photograph. It, it doesn't have perfect detail, but I know the general framing of it. And if you look at my photographs, you'll start noticing things like that, I hope. And that was really what I wanted to do was, again, take what I have, the camera, use this one lens pretty much all the time, a 50 millimeter lens, um, and just keep carving away until it's undeniable that there's something I'm trying to say um with the pictures you know so i think when you look through my pictures hopefully there's that sense that i'm not looking for authorship or like to be an author like you know scorsese or spielberg but yeah these are the people i look up to and respect in creativity these filmmakers who have a signature style to them and i just want that signature style to be honest and true to who i am and that's that's why the photographs hopefully look the way they do you know or they're meant to look that way that's insane that's really, really sharp. Um, so, is there whenever you're out, like, um, um, let's say you're, let's say you're, you're going out shooting. Um, you go to Tempelhof, you go to Hasenheide, you go down the streets of Neukölln. Um, like, is there? Do you, do you still do you have the picture in your mind of what you would like to shot to shoot, or um, do you look around and is there? something that's going to attract you, uh, attract your ideas, or do you get inspired by people around and their um, their movements, their faces, or do you have an idea of what you would like to shoot whenever you're you're going out? A lot of the time, I'd say 80% of the time, I have an image in my head before I leave the door, and I want to achieve, or at least get close as close as I can to that image, not knowing exactly how it will turn out, but knowing that the results will be probably more interesting than what I imagine. And I'd say 80% of the time I leave the house with the camera, that's what's in my head. Now, on my way to do that, I'm very much open to whatever may happen. But if you can imagine, if something suddenly happens on the street, a car crash, or uh, um, in fact, this did happen a few years ago, when I was doing that food photography, there was one point where I was just shooting some product photography and we were out on the street. And we're shooting on the street, this guy, you know, like a delivery driver type of setup. And with that, uh, a guy, you can just hear a woman screaming down the street. And I look down the street and I can see the woman and she's looking up towards the top of a building and she's screaming. And I look up and there's a man whose entire body is hanging out like essentially what must be a toilet cubicle window. It's like a square window at the top of the building. His entire body's hanging out bar his feet and ankles. And Whoa. he's he's thrown back, head pointed towards the ground, back the windows of the building, arms outspread with two bandages on each wrist. 
And I, I'm like, what the fuck is happening in this moment? And I did. I had the camera in my hand and I pointed it and I took this picture. I was using a wide lens at the time. So actually, when you look at the picture, this guy's a very small, tiny part of it. It's not a very aesthetically pleasing picture. It doesn't look that good. But if you look close enough, there's a guy trying to kill himself in it. And I took two pictures and then I put the camera down and I grabbed all the gear and bags that we had and started piling them on the ground underneath where he would fall if he falls. So we had all these bags and jackets that we were photographing. I took a carpet out of a skip. All this stuff started piling it up. And obviously the fire brigade and everything had been called. But the whole time this guy was screaming. Now, never, never wanted to take another picture. Well, I had gone past the point of being a sensitive human being and a good person. And I was now realizing that the photograph I'd taken a few minutes before was really poorly framed. And in the back of my head, I thought, I just, he's still hanging out there. Someone's holding onto his ankles. There's nothing more I can do. Surely I can take another photograph. <laughs> now, I didn't because I just felt, do you know what, that's wrong. I don't really take street photography. I certainly don't take pictures of homeless people and this sort of shit. Other people do. That's their thing. Um, but I, I felt pretty conflicted about the first two photographs I'd taken of this guy before I, I started packing the bags underneath him. And I just kind of thought, again, in future, I'll take the picture once. And that's all the time I have to do it. And if I'm going to take a picture or something like that, I'm going to do it right the first time. So I've never released that picture. I never will. But I, I keep it as a reminder. It's an aesthetically poor, poorly framed photograph. But if you look very closely, there's a man trying to kill himself. And uh, I just thought from then on, if I'm, if I'm going to take a picture of something that suddenly happens on the street, I'm going to be ready for it. So it's mostly like those things... Would you say you're more um, <clears throat> you're more attentive to things that are happening in the in the streets, or you're just like lucky that many times when you're just like when you <laughs> when you said like you took the picture of like a, when when I, the police flashed the lights. I, I I run to the fire. You see, that's what I do. That's my dad. That's um, the way we grew up. If there's a fucking big noise or an explosion or a fire somewhere, I'm running towards it, not away from it. So I think I don't get lucky. Um, I know I'm not sure luck really exists, but I sorry, there's a little bit of luck, obviously. But no, I, I'm there. If, if I if I hear it or I see it, I'm going to get as close to it as I can, um, within reason. And yeah, that the, the the picture of the guy hanging out the window is a real like whoa. Well, I was, I had one of those moments as a photographer. Maybe you kind of you hear about them with war photographers and stuff, where you're you know you're asked. Is it the right thing to do to take the picture? I didn't think. I just took it. But once I did have a chance to think, I decided not to take it. Yeah. Not to take a second one, you know? So there's something there where there's a duty with a camera, but it shouldn't it shouldn't override everything and certainly not your your the way you deal with other humans. But also, if you can take that picture, maybe that picture is more powerful than you know, I always thought maybe the picture is quite powerful with the guy hanging out the window, you know? Um, think of the one, do you remember the one from 9-11? The one picture where, where we see the, like, the guy... Man. Yeah. Falling man, yeah. 
That's like yeah. um, um, when you think, well, that person in case like uh, uh, indeed like that person who took the picture, they could have not like um, laid enough mattresses and enough things for the for the falling man to like actually Absolutely stay alive. But, uh, and you know what? All those mattresses and all that shit wasn't going to save this guy either if he fell out. He was dragged back in by the fire brigade. But yeah, it was like afterwards, I, I said it to the guy that I was with. I said, hey, I took two pictures. Was, yeah, he kind of looked at me like, that's a weird thing to do. But also, I was the only one that ran and grabbed all the fucking carpet and bags for to cushion the guy's landing. So, and in that yeah. in that sense, like uh, to me, um, I mean, I'm I'm really deeply involved and deeply touched by uh, anything related to mental health and people not feeling good in their lives. And um, to me, that picture, the, the taking the picture of uh, someone trying to end their life, um, considering. The, the the fire brigade was uh, on their way considering like you said there is nothing you can there is literally nothing you can do for like a man that is hanging because someone is holding them by their ankles um so like taking a picture it can actually it can show it can show it can show what it is it can serve a purpose to me yeah um, saying like okay look I, yeah this is this is reality of life and this is reality of society whenever you um, decide to give up this is how it this is how it looks like like yeah. a woman screaming downstairs and yourself trying desperately to to send it up yeah i i think like and i i was quite fresh in berlin at the time and i think now if i took the picture again i probably would I probably would have maybe uh, posted it do, to deny that these things happen in berlin is is kind of and I've had experiences since then with people, unfortunately, um, in Berlin and, and, and Ireland and different places. But uh, yeah, I think there is power to it, you know, but that's the power of photography. It's like no matter, I might take pictures of meaningless stuff all the time, but every now and then you are confronted with something where the power of what you're doing, the art maybe, or, or, or whatever it is, I, I don't think it's journalism I'm trying to do, you know. It's higher than, it's higher than journalism. Um, journalism... It's quite a quite a quite a, a, a large and vague topic, but uh, photography, yeah. the way you do it, um, I think even when you when you when I saw the the pictures of um, people when you were like shooting people in in Tempelhof, it's just it's just really amazing because it does have an it does have an impact also for the for the person um, to be like a to be a random person and having someone say, "Can I take a picture of you?" It's always. It has kind of a, a, a magic feeling inside. It is. You're and feeling like, it, oh, a... me? Like you want to take a picture of me? So that means yeah. that I might be a, I might be someone special just right now, just like for 10 seconds. Yeah. I might be like someone yeah. that's worth you spending yeah. 10 seconds making your best effort to take a good picture. Like and you want to know what the best feeling is? Is the feeling I get, you're satisfied with the picture of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> When I take a picture of someone who says, oh, I'm usually so awful in pictures, but I really like this one. That's makes my, that makes my day, you know? Uh, yeah. There's a power to, there's a, like a, a superpower. You know, there's, there's something else I just want to say. The, Werner Herzog again. Werner always talks about two things. The accountant's truth, which is like the journalist's truth, and the ecstatic truth, which is the poet's truth. The accountant's truth is the is the numbers and the lines and the, the facts right in front of you. And the poetic truth, the ecstatic truth, 
is is that which is is the elevated version of what you're seeing that that no, normal life can be elevated into a poetic treatment so you can see it in a lot of Herzog's movies where you know there's been some very nice editing going on like in Grizzly Man I mean he's trying to tell you the the ecstatic truth of of this man's story Timothy Treadwell not not just the any old documentary truth um because there is no truth in the camera right the minute you take a point of view the camera has taken a, an angle or a point of view on the situation that's not the real situation so why even try to make the accountant's truth when when reality with a camera is the poetic truth that might be that might be the one thing that you find um compelling about what you do is yeah, um, taking reality and giving it like your your own perspective twist. and your yeah. own twist if you look at the colors in my pictures they are because i like those colors the sky wasn't blue in the original image but i took a raw photographic file and i i processed them afterwards and the sky turns into a slightly turquoise or cerulean i think is the color because that's how I see it in my heart, in my mind's eye, you know, not to be too cheesy about it, but my psychedelic mind, that's what that sees. And so I put that into the photograph. And so when people say, oh, I love the colors, I said, for years, I, I was trying to keep the colors accurate to real life, to the accountant's truth. And that's boring. They're boring photographs. It only became exciting when I, when I said, Do you know what, there is no rules here. The color is whatever I say it is. Yeah, you can paint the giraffe the uh, color you, you want. Elevate it. Bring it out of the norm, you know? Fucking a photograph on your phone is a normal photograph, but like a, a processed Lightroom digital image where I've interpreted the colors in my own way and I've calibrated it in a certain way and spent a lot of time to achieve a certain look because that's the truth of how I wanted to see it when I took it originally, you know? Um, and I want it to be... Yeah, I want it to be poetic rather than just a, a evidence. So if, um, to the question, if photography was an easy thing, an easy thing to do, what would it be like? Um, could we say that if you want photography to be, um, if you want to become a photographer, amateur or professional, whatever, if you want to make the first step, um, you have to want to express um, your to to make the world express itself as you would want it, if that makes any sense. Show the way you see the world. You specifically. You're the only. You're. Uh, I can teach you in sixty minutes. I can give you a crash course on any DSLR, SLR camera. Uh, uh, on an analog camera, I can I can teach you the settings. I could do it in thirty minutes. I'll write you down a little diagram. You can take it away and put it in your pocket. Now you have the technical ability to use this camera. What are you going to do with it? <laughs> right? If you've got the technical ability to use a pencil, what are you going to do? To draw in your style. Same with the camera. I can teach you how to use it, and we can all learn how to use it. It's not. It shouldn't be a gate kept secret how these cameras work although some people act like it is. Anyone can use them. It's what you do afterwards. It's what you do with it that it matters. What's the best camera to have? The one you have in your hand. Um, 
I think he, it's I really truly believe and I've heard you know you hear people say it all the time Donald Glover was the last one I heard say only you can do you that's the unique thing you bring to the world is you your personality so when it comes to art unique art is is an art of 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 the individual you know of of their mental view of the world and I think mine's kind of psychedelic so my pictures are going to be colorful this is insane this is amazing <laughs> this is amazing well i it's funny because um yeah that's the uh, there's those times in in this podcast where um i definitely do hope that um speaking of vision i definitely do hope that people will have will be able to see through your vision and the incredible amount of inspiring words you said in there um that's actually my way of of like uh, of fulfilling what you're what you're what you're what you're saying like um i want to i want to show um people's lives people's experiences people's arts um i want to show to to show a perspective to show um a way to see life arts um anything could be maybe i'm interviewing a butcher at some point or maybe i'm interviewing a farmer at some point yeah um it's universal yeah I just think, to... i think those ideas that i'm talking about are universal to everything that there isn't there can be a potential art energy in anything that's done whether it's a butcher baker candlestick maker it, it, there is a universal theory there somewhere i think you know and it's it's somewhere between the poetic truth and the accountant's truth and and all those other things i'm shiting on about you know that um there's a we can all take an artistic approach to whatever we do to anything you do and my approach might be different to yours but it's important to find one you know yeah it's important to find one but i'd say it's also important to not get stuck on yours on your um vision because um many times whenever you get stuck on your own vision i don't know if that ever happened to you but i come to that uh, like in I, w- I would say in in cycles yeah, there's always a point where wise. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna realize like oh uh, it's pretty dark in here. No, it's just that I had my head stuck in my own ass. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe I just turn on the lights. <laughs> yeah, like, so I mean, it's important to must... just like get inspired by other people and like have um, exactly. listen to other people. Get bored, get bored with what you're doing and move on to something new if it feels right. You know, it's okay to. Yeah, I, I get bored of some of the stuff I do, so I try and do something different, you know, and I, I, I try to challenge myself all the time, but I do it on my own terms, in my own time. And I don't let other people tell me anymore. Uh, you know, in a sense, it's great to listen and be inspired by other people, but it's also great to be confident in, in a solid idea of your own and follow through on it. Mm. The satisfaction from that is, you know, uh, there was one thing I read years ago in, when I lived in Winnipeg, it was about writing. It was kind of, uh, don't, if you have a story, don't tell anybody the story until you've written it down. Because your brain will reward you for telling the story and you lose the sense of discovery uh, and you won't write it down then. So there's something about keeping the idea, certain ideas a little bit precious, but being open to influence from everywhere, to just be a sponge for everything, but just let keep that idea sacred until until you're ready to commit to it, you know? 
Whatever you do, don't tell anyone the lost art of keeping a secret. <laughs> yeah, don't don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone the end of the story, you know, because you want to write that. You want to discover it as you write it, because something might change. But once you tell it, then you've you've already you've already set the parameters for it. If that makes sense. So I, that's something I'm not very good at, but I, I I try and learn when I get very excited about an idea. I try and keep it to myself for a bit longer now. But for many years, I would. Uh, Hey, I'm so excited. I'm going to do this tomorrow. And then once I had told people, the joy of, of actually going out and seeking it is gone. And I found that very, uh, I think, a helpful piece of advice. Keep, 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 it, keep the story to yourself until you're ready to write it down. That makes sense. I think it happens with music too, probably a lot. I mean, I make music as a hobby. And, and sometimes the worst thing I've ever done is show it to someone before it's finished to show somebody a work in progress and, and they don't react in the way that you're reacting to it. And it's just, it just can be a really crushing disappointment. Um, to that, I would say there's like a, there's different, uh, there's different approach. Um, so recently I've started, um, um, I've got to, I've got to know like a, a, a man that made so much for electronic music and his way right. of working is like really, he's, he's always like uh, sharing whatever he's doing, like the idea once it's, I, I don't know. Once it's like half an hour, half an hour, boom, idea. Idea is like is laid down. Is messaging me yeah. like, what do you think it is? And I'm like giving him my point of view, whatever I feel about the the piece. So saying mm -hmm. to pe showing to pe to show your ideas to people, you have to approach it in a, in a, in a certain way. If you have the idea already in your mind, it's either a hit, either you're like a, a, you're bullshitting yourself. If you're showing that to people and you're actually bullshitting yourself, they're going to say it to you, which is pretty disappointing on one hand. If you have a hit, then they're going to say it also. And it can be either putting pressure on you because you're scared that you're never going to be able to finish that idea. And you're mm -hmm. and you're frustrated that the days are only 24 hours and you need sleep eight hours in between in between two days, if you want to stay mm -hmm. healthy. Um, so like it's all it's a quite a, it's quite a difficult way to um, approach this. But on the other hand, I've experienced myself um, like for example in 2021, I finished about a hundred tracks. Um, mm. So. Yeah, I went on a I went on a big. I'm quite an extreme guy um, in terms of um, discipline and in terms of dedication. And whenever I say I'm going to do things, you get obsessive. Yeah. Um, well, recently I've got more like, a, but maybe it's also the fact that I have like a full time job in the middle. It's also more difficult. And but anyway, in that time I made I made a hundred tracks, but I did not share any with anyone, and I was literally doing myself doing my thing by myself. And what happened is just, yeah, I've made a hundred tracks, but on these hundred tracks, there were not many that were actually to keep because they were lacking the external point of view. The, when you're making music, sometimes you're literally okay. head, you're head on, you're, you're, you're like head in the helmet and you're like driving. Yeah. And you can't drive and make the grocery lists and you can't you can't do everything at the same time. So what you need you always need to have people around you that will actually be like a co-pilot and tell you about the road yeah. and tell you about like a, oh wait, there's a hard left and if you don't take the hard left, we're actually like plunging down into the sea. So like you better just listen to me now. Um, yeah. and so I, I see now it's actually it's very true. It's 
it's a really good it's a really good training to actually share your mu when in in music not talking about anything else but in the process of making music whenever you are a tenured music producer meaning you finished at least 10 tracks you've released a, a bit like a, you you you're, you're like not the greatest producer in the world but you're able to make music you're able to do it it's actually useful to share with other people to have their thoughts and their um, advices to that that are going that is going to help you make the music a bit more like you i don't know if that makes sense but um we tend to sometimes when we're making music do things and go completely out of our way and when you have people around that kind of know your style or you know them because you have um like similar taste in music they're going to be able to tell you okay no you should do it do this like this put this like that and be careful with this and be careful with that and you're missing maybe yeah. that little element here and uh, this part here has a little bit too much pressure which is um actually taking away the the cherry from the cake so if you're working with other people like that you also learn to be um humble and resilient you'll you learn to not be um like devastated by um someone yeah. saying to you this is this is shit like really like i know you you're my friend but this is shit yeah 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 no and, and and it's true i do have like two or three people that i would have no problem showing anything to well it's a work in progress and yeah i guess maybe and I've like recently I've I've, I've uh, reached out to people and had slightly bigger shoots and where I've had to work with other people and I, I'm usually like kind of a solo solo guy but it's been it's been very interesting and but I've always had trouble trying to find the band you know I had a band when I was younger like a musical band with like my best friends and we played for years just jammed it out and that was great but we all went different ways you know um job wise and relationship life wise and i've never been able to find that group you know um those people that i really trust as much as those friends in that creative space because uh, as i said confidence has always been an issue and when you're in a band with your best friends you can't really do anything wrong and you can take the criticism from them because it, it feels you're all in it together you know um and I kind of I crave that. I'd look, like what would be your advice on forming these kind of groups of people? You know, these trustworthy ears and eyes. Well, um, you're actually asking a um, um, a really, really, really good question, which is um, for several reasons. Because one, I think um, you're not alone to think that, and because two, I actually have the same problem. Um, like confidence-wise, um, it's a big topic. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I have. I think as I think a, a squirrel that rides the park next to where I live has more confidence than I do. Um, <laughs> but still, um, Jocko Willink likes to say that whenever you're not comfortable with something, it's actually you need to walk. You need to direct yourself towards it. You like you need to. Uh, yeah, you need to walk towards, towards the danger. Fear. Um, because this is how because this is how you grow and this is how you're gonna learn. And if you stay, um, if you just get yourself a shotgun and a couple of hand grenades and you just fucking put bricks on your windows and you just stay home and get delivery food, you're never gonna grow. You're literally you'll be safe. You'll probably live old, old and bored, <laughs> but uh, yeah. you're never gonna grow. 
Um, so that's uh, when I, what I mean by that is not that you should get your, get the fuck out of your room, but this is what I what I did. This is what I did yeah. was um, I've decided to um, do something, and this is actually how I have started. This was the idea behind me starting Lesson Org. So Lesson Org was myself <clears throat> um, going back to going back to um, France. Um, like it's pandemic and I've been like uh, going like uh, in and out of France. I was officially back in France in 2019, but I was spending a lot of weekends in, in Berlin. And then at some point I said, okay, like no more weekends, no more nothing. Like I need to go and I need to get away from there and just like stay and um, stay in France and settle and do something about my music, my life, my career of something. There's something needs to change. I can't just live in Berlin and work in bars and just like come home every night at like 3 a.m. half drunk and uh, think that I'm going anywhere with this. So I said, yeah. okay, I need to have, um, I, I've always loved my, my, my friends here in, in Berlin, but I've always felt like musically, um, we were kind of on, diff on a different um like um, we had different music visions. So whenever I was yeah, playing with yeah, them, yeah. it was always like I, I knew I could adapt to them, but it always feels weird to be able to, to have to adapt always to other people that you that you play with. I like the, the idea that you come in, you bought those records and you go like, okay, I'm going to play those records, which I, which I bought, which I love, and I'm not going to necessarily, not that I'm going to play for myself, but I'm going to play the music that I love and not spend hours trying to adapt to the people that I, that I play with. Um, yeah. so what I said is, okay, I need to have, I need to have a, I need to be part of a, I need to be part of a crew. I need to be part of a gang. I need to be part of, um, like some people that I need to find those people that have like similar tastes, similar vision of music. And what I started thinking was, okay, um, in life, it's always give before you get. Um, so if you don't go to um, like DJs and talk to them and like send them music or like oh. um, um, do something or try to help them in, in some way or like try to be part of the community, you're literally not going to be, you're, not, you're never going to have a community. So I started this website to review electronic music, which um, I felt was uh, valuable. I felt makes made sense according to my taste. Um, and I started the, to think, okay, maybe I can um, start to, um, yeah, just reviewing those records and putting them on a, on a proper website on like, not a review on Facebook or like a post on Instagram that everyone makes. No, just like I'm investing time, money, yeah. energy. I want to do something proper, Legit. something proper. And yeah. it started like that. And then I started thinking, okay, maybe let's just um, try to, um, I, I got to meet just by doing that, just by taking the time to write and put every single one of my emotions into those words and to, to describe the music from people I love. I got to meet like unbelievable people. So yeah. after that was done, I started thinking, okay, um, I need to make, I need to make records because I have a lot of music to release. And I realized that making records for the music you have to release, it's either you're an absolute genius and this is going to make hits from the, from the very beginning. Either you're just a musician and you're not a, you're not a genius. You're just a musician like we, most of us are. And we make, good mu we make good music, what we feel is good music, but we're not necessarily changing the face of music. So at that, from that moment, you're either um, 
going to make a record label that's centered around you and you're going to do it until you run out of money. Or you could use the opportunity of making records to um, actually want to sign other people and like put other people not on a digital kind of fucking thing, like just, and no offense for friends of mine that do digital only, like everyone, it's, everyone does whatever they, whatever they can. But I felt like if I'm asking someone some music, if I'm asking people music, if I'm asking to sign people some, their, their music on my label, I would want it to be on, I would want it to be on vinyl. Um, because we're all seeking that, and it's a it's a great it's a great thing to do. So I started making this label and recently signing other people on various artists and shit like that. And I felt like, okay, to to build a crowd, it starts with an intention, with not knowing exactly the kind of people you'd like to have, but just just putting things. With me, it started with putting things up in the air. Like, okay, I wish I could have friends that are into this field of music okay all right mutually um, beneficial exactly and then um you start to think okay what would they uh, need what would what would they need what would be great uh, for them what would be um i try to think on a on a yeah on a on a win-win situation on a win-win deal always like same as this podcast um i want to build a podcast so of course if ever we get like many uh, listeners or this takes off, I will benefit from it. But also every person that I will have on this podcast will also benefit from it. So it makes, um, this is how, this is literally how we build um, 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 a tribe, a gang, a crew or band yeah. or however you want, you want to yeah. call it. You Absolutely. put yourself, you put an intention and then you move towards something that could benefit other people and that could also uh, benefit you or even maybe not maybe it just benefits other people and you're you're just happy to do it because it serves other people but it also has to serve um a bigger goal a bigger yeah. purpose it, a bigger goal it, it's ex so after i was published on the cover of der spiegel um i realized there was some interest from um other irish people and from the irish embassy here in berlin I've kind of thought to myself, I should use this. I should do something with this. I should ride a bit of a wave here. So I kind of used it to, I put out a message. I said, Irish creative artists in Berlin, I'd like to take your photograph, uh, take a nice portrait of you and have a chat, I'll write a little bit of text, and you can have the photographs for whatever you want to use them for. And so I did that for about a year. I met so many people, like unexpected, you know, uh, people. And now I, I bump into them all over Berlin and it's great. But that was like a seed I planted. I didn't know where it would go. Um, but I felt like at least I'd meet some cool people along the way and I'd make those connections. And the Irish connection can be very strong. You know, I, I've talked about Ireland so much. Uh, I am definitely defined in, in a lot of ways by Ireland. But just before Christmas, the opportunity, um, I won a commission from the Irish Embassy in Berlin to take portraits of Irish people in Germany um, to celebrate 50 years of Ireland's membership to the European Union. So for the last two months, uh, sorry, since the end of January, I've been taking trains around Germany, meeting uh, generations of Irish people who've been here since one person since 1971. Um, chatting and photographing them 
And and that really comes about because of those seeds I planted a few years before, where I, I, I said, here's some free photographs, just give me a chance to take some nice portraits and fill my portfolio and uh, maybe write some text. And, and a few years later, I, I get this amazing opportunity to travel around Germany for the last three months and get to know Irish people in, in a pretty unique way, you know, those that, that came and settled in Germany. So I can really identify with what you just said there. When it comes to creativity, these people who, yeah, of course they have a personal investment in it, but really through that, they support other people. Like the producer on a movie, you know, who doesn't stick his nose in and lets the director do whatever they want. Um, like what a wonderful person to, to fuel another person's vision. I think like they're, they're rare, noble people. And if you can find them, hold on to them, I think. I'd say to find your, your, <clears throat> your band, your crew, it starts with, that's going to sound maybe like very like, um, but uh, like put an intention because if you don't put an intention on anything, uh, you just like, you, you end up with whatever there is and whatever there is will not necessarily make you happy. So yeah. you put an intention, you say, okay, I'd like to um, meet people, like for example, with me, it was, I'd like to meet people that are interested in top techno, deep and deep music and minimal music. Like that's the three criterias. I want people interested in that. Um, and then I want people that are interested in vinyl, in vinyl, that like to play, that like to play vinyl records such as I do. Mm. Um, I want people that um, are willing to work or put themselves at work or their uh, money or their whatever it is, like put resources on the table to make to make parties. And that just happened literally um, earlier last last year. I've met uh, the kind of guy that really um, that that really it, with whom it feels natural and exciting and fun and um, like uh, and it's it, anything you would dream the the perfect partner to make parties, um, so things come, but yeah, start by with an intention and then yeah. get get on the fucking move. Like just um, if you wanna if you wanna if you wanna start if you wanna start a band, um, maybe just um, there's this the scene is small enough for uh, songwriters singers or for like bands in Berlin. That I'd say, if you get interested in the in the scene and you just make a, a f first move and offer whatever you you have to offer to meet people, and um, you're mm. gonna you're gonna you're gonna certainly meet them. And whenever you meet them, whenever you um, get somebody's trust, not because you're a sneaky fucking bastard and you know how to get someone's trust to then fuck to them, fuck them hard, exactly. but because I you're a genuine wrong. beautiful person, and that whenever people know who you are, of course you win their trust. Um, and then once you have that, um, you can share more and more and you can get to create together and then maybe make this world um, an even better place than it already is because we live on an island of unicorns and um, and, and rainbows here in Berlin. <laughs> yeah, 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 if we want to, yeah, for sure. Right on. Um, on a more... Um, let's say I like to I like to ask that sometimes to my guests. Do you have any um, like daily habits, um, morning routine, things like that, or is it like completely freestyle? Like you wake up at whichever the uh, hour, depending on the night before, or do you have like a fixed time when you to wake up? How is your it's life? Pretty loose. It's pretty loose. 
Yeah, I work a couple of nights in a bar as well. Um, you know how medical insurance is in Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, those nights, uh, it's it's pretty haphazard. I tried to put more routine on as I get older. Um, there's been a lack of it over the years for sure. Uh, I watch, I listen to all the podcasts, I watch all the YouTube videos, you know, but I don't know, it just... I think I need to find something that I enjoy more for that. But as far as, yeah, getting up early to me now is like staying up late was when I was a child. Uh, if I can get up early and start my day early, it's like a, it's a really great, great thing for me. Um, but yeah, I've always been a night owl. I could stay up all night just maybe working on some pictures or reading some bullshit on Wikipedia, you know, um, it's it's all a bit haphazard, which is probably quite clear from everything I've said so far. <laughs> um, but I have so much respect. I really like look up to people like yourself who who are fit and stay healthy. I I, I was doing yoga for a time. I found extremely helpful and very productive. Um, but again, I was only attending a yoga class because I knew the instructor, you know, and I felt comfortable that I could sit at the back fart in peace um <laughs> so uh yeah and uh, no it's pretty haphazard like I, I just try and when i go out um i bring my camera with me if i'm not bringing my camera with me i'm not feeling so good that day i'm not feeling confident uh, if i bring my camera with me it's a good day i may not take any pictures but it's, it's hanging by my side um i gotta take my dog to the park every day as well i got a beautiful husky called, called puka and so she's She's been the subject uh, of some of my photographs as well. Uh, so she, she uh, requires, um, you know, constant exercise and, and that. So she actually has given me more routine than I've ever had in years. How long, how long do you have her? Um, three years now. Wow. You had her yeah. as, a, as a puppy? Tiny, tiny puppy, yeah. Ah. <laughs> a friend of, ours, a friend of <laughs> ours had the mother and the lockdown happened. And she thought, well... If not now, then never. So she ended up having four puppies and nobody wanted Puka. And so I got the first dog I've ever had in my life. Wow. And it's awesome. Uh, it's really great, you know, to just have a little creature running around and to make a bit of a bond. And she's very affectionate. She's a husky. So I started at expert level of dog ownership. Um, they're different. Um, I, I didn't start on an easy one, you know. Yeah, they're, um, close, they're close to wolves, like. Yeah, no, she's, uh, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to put into words. She's just really, really an amazing little creature. Um, she's lying here next to me at the moment, probably looking for a walk. <laughs> uh, so that's been a real change um, over the last few years. I think that's just getting a bit older. I try not to um, party as much as I would have done. I think I spent a lot of years getting experience, life experience. And uh, I'm more prefer kind of a quieter quieter life now like i work in a bar but i tend not to go out to bars so much anymore um yeah try to eat good food and uh listen to good stuff i, I should read a lot more uh, actually but I, I did finish reading um like probably last year finished reading the three body problem science fiction from china uh, if anybody's listening the three body problem three body problem yeah that'd be my big shadow I, I love science fiction um i like real 
hard sci-fi novels like Neil Stevenson, if you've ever read any of his books. Um, but there's this guy, Shan Zhan Lu, a science fiction writer from China. He wrote this trilogy over the last 10 years or so called The Three-Body Problem. Fascinating. Um, really a really cool sci-fi story. Recently finished, uh, concluded watching the 30-episode Chinese TV adaptation. Uh, where like they literally have a, they have adapted it literally nearly page by page in a way that like Western uh, <laughs> Western TV shows certainly don't. There'll be a Netflix version coming soon, so we'll actually be able to measure the difference with the Chinese one. Quite low budget in a way, very um, some poor acting from the the uh, English speaking actors, but a brilliant adaptation of the book all the same. If you're you wouldn't watch the show unless you're you've read the book, uh, but essentially. Um, the premise. Do you want to hear the premise? The, Please. Uh, so the premise is um, essentially a bunch of scientists around the world have started killing themselves. And we follow this one scientist in particular, and he suddenly started to see a countdown timer in his eyes. Um, even when he closes his eyes at night, it's always there. He opens his eyes, he looks at a bright light, it turns black. You know, he can see this countdown all the time. He doesn't know what it is, but it's driving him crazy. And essentially, there's uh, something. Um, uh, it starts off, sorry, I'm doing a terrible job of this. But uh, it starts off in the 70s in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And they've essentially got a, a SETI uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence set up, not unlike the Americans. They did their own uh, in the 70s. And they're looking for stuff and they actually get a, a message from some aliens out there. And the alien says, I happen to be a pacifist in my world. Um, don't reply to this message. If you do so, then we'll, my people will be able to locate you and they will come and conquer you and destroy you and wipe you out. And this disgruntled uh, Chinese um, uh satellite scientist worker she's like fuck it come and get us humanity's dog shit um come and find us so essentially it sets a 400 year timer they're going to travel to us and take us over and we have about 400 years to figure out what to do wow i did a terrible job of explaining that i think no you didn't <laughs> i don't want to give too much away either because there's a whole there's a virtual reality game that everybody's playing on earth that seems to be a, a a, a facsimile or like a training program that shows you what the alien planet is like and what the aliens deal with. They live in a tri-solar system with three stars orbiting with a completely unpredictable weather system. So they've evolved a very different way. It's got some unbelievable ideas and it's a trilogy. Uh, couldn't recommend it enough. Everybody should read it. That sounds pretty insane. <laughs> Yeah, it's even crazier than that. Like, yeah, some pretty crazy concepts. And um, yeah, to see, like, uh, to read a book, I've never read a Chinese sci-fi before. So this is my first. You know, it's uh, it's cool to see it from that science fiction from that perspective, you know. Shan Zhan Lu. Check it out. Wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that I'll definitely Learned. I'll definitely put a link to put a link to that in the description three body problem yeah I'm sure some people know about it the three body problems yeah every time I bump into someone who's read it you know it's rare but 
book. It's a great convert, like it's air as a conversation. Um, yeah, it's just it's just great ideas. Check it out. Um, yeah, yeah. We can talk about movies much, but maybe some other time. It's a pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. So definitely, there's the need for there will be the need for another one uh, with you. That's for sure, a hundred percent. To close it off, I'd like to um, ask you a last question, which is, um, what what would you think could be done to make uh, Berlin a better place for artists? Because We all know, like all of us that arrived in the, the last wave that arrived in the real Berlin to me was our wave, like 2016, 17. That was the times when you could still find spots, places, apartments for 300 euros a month, not, not, not apartments, but like rooms for 300 euros a month. You still had the opportunity to be able to go by um, working a couple of days a week and you didn't need like a full-time job to um literally be alive and breathe the yeah. air of Berlin. Um, so I like to collect oh. ideas about what could be done, not to go back to those days, because we can't go back to those days, but what, what, could we, what could be done to make Berlin a better place for artists, do you think? It's like, I feel like the completely wrong person to ask about that. I think, yeah, well, like the first thing that comes to my head is uh, tell your friends moving here to stop, um, you know, paying so much for, for rent, you know, or offering to pay so much because, you know. That's, that's literally a problem because like when we have people, for example, from moving from New York, let's say, where like a hey, studio apartment my, my is. My limit is 2000, you know, yeah. for studio apartment. It's like, shut up. Like Why your limit is fucking 500, you cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, like, I feel like there's lots of things going on in Berlin. It, it's hard for me to say, how do I improve it for artists? I'm not really... I, I, that's what I try to do is, is rising boats or the rising tide lifts all boats. You know, help each other out, reach out, you know, don't... It's not an elitist thing. It shouldn't be... You know, just because you're doing well, that you're some sort of royalty or something like that. You know, um, I think I think really I see a lot of stuff going on around me. Here I am on uh, like kind of Richardstrasse area. There's a workspace across the road, and um, there's a couple of empty lots, uh, old Spati there on Karl Marxstrasse down the road that I see being used each week for um, a gallery thing. I love that. I think taking over a lot of those spaces while they're sitting dormant before the vulture fund capitalists come in and turn them into apartments, like that would be great to, to be able to utilize a lot of those spaces that I see just sitting there for months and years, you know, um, maybe something like that. Like be able to use the spaces that are not used at the moment for art. Making them available, yeah, more like I'm available seeing it, for um, the old Gundi Spati on Karl Marxstrasse, great Spati for years. They'd have decks outside sometimes, and um, but they're gone now. And then the phone shop beside it is gone, and it's this one big open space. And I see, I think it's a Brazilian girl, and they're holding events there. The last few weeks, surely it's going to be, it's being sold or it's in the process of being auctioned. The space, 
Uh, but in the meantime, it's been used. And I just see there's a lot of places closing down at the moment, a lot of shops going out of business or leaving the premises because of inflation or whatever. I don't fully know. But that if there was a um, more of a, a move to occupy these spaces for art shows, for artists, even if it's only a matter of like a few weeks or, and I don't mean occupy in a, a Wall Street sort of way. I mean, in a, you know, just use the spaces while they're there. Like maybe that landlords should, while there is, while, while they have no proposition for the, like for renting it or for buying it, they should yeah. like make it available it's, for, it's for artists. It's just able to make a nice deal with the management company or whoever. It's like, can we just use this or pay the electricity on it? You know, I mean, these sorts of things are great. In, in Dublin, unfortunately, we had a, like, we had places like this for about 10 years, kind of in the wake of 2008-2009. There was suddenly like places where nobody was paying the rent anymore that were available and there was cool parties happening, all that, but they just slowly got crushed by the hotels now being built, the rental crisis, all of this. And there were some amazing places that Emma Condon would have been involved in. Mabos was one of them. There were amazing places where you met people that you shared there were like mini festivals on a friday night and and you know um a lot of art going on and a lot of uh, uh good times you know um but very art orientated and i just feel like berlin has lots of those places still where dublin doesn't and i think maybe it'd be cool to see them used more often maybe i should be looking into that maybe you should be 100 percent. that's a good idea how's that Good, amazing. That's uh, bring definitely bring something. the The idea with this question is to like bring ideas, like kind yeah, of a major brainstorm. Yeah. So any idea is always is always welcome. Yeah, yeah. I guess like again, I'm not. There is people out there who just have are properly involved in communities or creating communities. You know, um, that yeah, they show a lot more um, ambition. Uh, towards that sort of thing than I I have, um, I guess I would like to be involved, but I just feel like maybe I'm like a uh, bit of a grumpier older guy now, and I, I'm like happy taking my pictures. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I love other artists. I love seeing other people's work. So like, the more spaces they have, the better, right? Um, and yeah, just the fucking rent stuff. People coming here should tell their friends not to be so. Not to show so much dollar in their wallet, you know? Yeah. Like you Something have money, like, good, keep it for yourself. You're going to need it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen it in Dublin. I left Dublin because it got so prohibitively, prohibitively expensive. Rent, cost of living. And unfortunately, I do see it happening here in Berlin. And I think it's inevitable. Um, I've said it since I arrived seven years ago that uh, it's happening, the same thing here. But Berlin's bigger, so it's slower to happen. But in Dublin, they really, they killed the art scene, you know, or they're trying to kill it by uh, gutting places and replacing them with hotels or Amazon headquarters. And unfortunately, that's going to be the same story for Berlin. It's just a matter of how long you can hold it off. And Berliners can be quite good at that sort of stuff. So, I mean, just increase the increase the power or fuel that goes into that sort of stuff, um, I think would be a great thing for artists. Just try and maintain spaces. More arts, less Amazon, less Tesla, less... 
But it, what's happened is people came to Dublin for the crack and the kyol and, and the bands and the live music and all the music that was happening in these times when people had no jobs. That's what people came for. And then as soon as the country starts doing good again, out with the people who can't pay enough rent, musicians, artists, and in with the, with the Facebook, Google, SAP, Amazon employees. But I mean, like, same same happened in in south of France. We were saying that because we, when I started DJing when I was seventeen, it was the last times we had beach parties. So yourself, whenever you're like thirty years old, you go to south of France. You think Mediterranean Sea. You're going to think straight ahead. You're going to say, okay, summertime, we're going to have a beach party, right? Yeah. Um, and you'd come to where I come from, and you would realize that there is no. Like I'm saying, strictly no party on the beach. Yeah. Like up until like on, on at places where you can walk to from your hotel. So if you <laughs> if you have a car, you might be able to find a spot that is about minimum 45 minutes drive from where you are, which means you're going to have to drive when you're fucked up, <laughs> which is a complete heresy. Yeah. yeah. Um. And every time we were trying to throw parties on the beach, it was always like, okay, I'll have to end at 2.30. And you're like, 2.30 is like you're, you've just gone to the restaurant by 8, you're out of the restaurant at 10. By the time you get to the party, it's 11. You had a couple of drinks at 12, you're starting to feel okay. At it's 1, over. you're dancing and you're feeling what the music is bringing to you. And then at 2.30, you start to really feel good and it just shuts down. And you're like, no, that's, it's, it's, it's not. And what happens there is that people came, like in the, in the 60s, 70s, they have developed, on type jean Lepin, where I, where I come from, they developed it as like a, a, a place where people would come on holidays and have fun. And so all these people like had money and bought like all the apartments by the sea. And they were like, yeah, this is so great. And then they had families and then they grew old and now they're old and they want quiet. And <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, you're like, okay, so like you came here whenever you um, were in age to rock and roll. And now that you're not in age to rock and roll, which to me, seems completely stupid because like whenever you're in age to rock and roll, you're always in age to rock and roll and um, you want things to be quiet. But like, how about those that want to do exactly the same, that, the same things that you did safely, meaning like not driving, going to clubs, going to parties, going to bars, walking, not driving, not risking their lives and the lives of other people. Like, how would you not want them to be able to do that? And it's the same everywhere. It's the same as Berlin people that came in. Prenzlauerberg first was the first place that started to shut down all these clubs. And Prenzlauerberg was a place where all the clubs were, all the nightlife was. And then, like, suddenly all these people started to have, like, kids and families and they wanted everything to be quiet and they wanted everything to shut down. Um, I'm seeing in clubs recently, like... Um, Signs, not smoking, no smoking, no smoking. Like, so what? Like, you made clubs for people to just like let loose. Okay, you don't like smoking. You don't like uh, smoke. Well, you want to be healthy. My dear, sweet, little, idiotic friend. If you want to be fucking healthy, you have nowhere to go. And you should not go to any to any clubs. Like <laughs> staying healthy is just like you want to stay healthy and you go to McDonald's 
Like, <laughs> no, doesn't work. Or you want to stay healthy and you sit on your ass and watch TV. No, doesn't work. You want to be healthy, you stay home and you do your life like that. Now, you want to be healthy, but then sometimes give it a little bit of a funk. Well, you go to clubs, okay, there's people smoking. Well, if you're sitting in a, if you're in a smoky room like once a week, 10 hours, it's yeah. okay. If you're in a smoky room every day, it's a different deal. But yeah. Like that's the that's the it's the same the same thing, but I guess that's a human nature and we can't really do anything Unfortunately, about that. Unfortunately, like it's smoking bars are where all the most interesting people are. Sadly, that's, what yes. someone, that's what someone said to me in the bar one night. They, yeah. I, they said, I'm not a smoker, but smoking bars have the most interesting people. Yeah. You know, and there's there is something to be said for that. You know, you take away the little things, and they're the things that I miss when I go back to Ireland. I love Ireland, but there's a hundred little things that go missing from my life when I go back to Ireland. There are little freedoms that I have in Berlin that I don't have back in Ireland. And if you just start eroding them one by one, it just becomes the same as everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, uh, it's restricting people. It's good to, um, it's good to make, to, to take responsibility for people's health. But um, at some point, whenever they go to the toilet, they have to wipe their own ass. Like the state exactly. cannot wipe your own ass. So if you decide to drink, if you decide to smoke, you decide to drink, you decide to smoke, you decide to start, you decide to stop. If you can't stop, you decide to get help or you decide to not. Like at some yeah. point, I'm well aware that addictions are a big problem and that, um, of course, we should always give help to people. There, There's people like me, I can... I can spend months without drinking. Like it's really not a problem. But mm -hmm. I've had so much, so many problems with um, food and like food disorders and shit like that. And no one was yeah. here to help me out with that. Like yeah. whenever you look at TV, whenever you look everywhere you go, you had that those foods that were killing me. But so why? That's that's what I don't understand. Like I educated myself, which was hard. It took me about fifteen years to be able to to get there. But if I was able to to do that, now I avoid places or situations where I put myself in trouble. Like if you are getting in trouble because of smoky bars, then don't then don't go to smoky bars. That's it. <laughs> if you're in trouble with alcohol, then either you're strong enough or you have a plan and you're able to find a way to like build a, a like a, a solid um, discipline to not drink whenever you go to bars. Either you simply do something else. And but you don't, you shouldn't piss off people because they want to have like once in a while they want to get drunk and be able to smoke a cigarette as they have their whiskey. Or yeah, their beer. I mean it's as common it's as common as the the sound thing in Berlin where, uh, you know, people move in above a bar and then start complaining about the the level of volume from the bar. It's like the bar has been there for ten years. You are, it's practically a cultural institution. And now a newcomer wants to like close it down. It's like what, what the fuck? Yeah, it's just like. A, Which, yeah, I mean. Sorry, yeah. No, no, makes no sense. I was going. I was going to talk shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think we're pretty much done with what with what we have. Um, but uh, that was an amazing talk, man. That was really, really extremely inspiring from beginning to end. I loved every single word that you said. And I'm pretty sure that I myself, it's going to be hard for me to sleep because I'm all fired up and I want to get creative with all these ideas. And I really hope that people that have listened to this will have the same feeling. 
Ah, uh, well, like, I mean, the exact same mutual feeling right back at you. Uh, it was a lovely conversation. Um, which, uh, which bar do you, which bar do you, do, do you work at these days? Uh, Fabelhaft. Fabelhaft. Uh, Is it the one, um, on, uh, next to... It's online Strasse. Good. You were there? Yeah, for your birthday. Yeah, you were there. Cool. Um, yeah, cool. Um, are you yeah, working this I, weekend? I'll be working on Thursday and Friday. Thursday, Thursday and Saturday. Thursday and Saturday. Saturday. Pop by if you want. Saturday, there's a possibility I pop by. Yeah, no pressure. Are you playing somewhere on Friday? No, um, I'm just working this weekend and I'm taking it easy from clubs because I have a tinnitus in my right ear and I need to take Ooh. care of that. Fuck. That's the, that's the hazards of the job, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I, I've had an absolutely lovely time talking to you. It was absolutely great. Um, uh, I don't know. I think I've waffled a bit. I think you asked me about my daily routine. It probably sounds really depressing. Actually. No. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. What, if it doesn't work, just just get rid of it. Um, but yeah. Otherwise, uh, thanks a million. Um, very nice. It's super flattering to be asked. So and, uh, an honor to be a part of it. It was amazing, man. Really, really inspiring. Cheers, man. No, that's really nice to say. Uh, I feel the same. Listen, dude. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, man. Okay. Cool. Have a good one. Much love. Much love.